You've stumbled upon the Book Stops Here podcast, a book review podcast that will help you impress your frivolous, fancy friends at the next wine tasting or yacht party. The lords will marvel at your rich tastes, and the ladies will certainly swoon at your intellectual intensity. Pour yourself a warm glass of brandy and light your pipes. Prepare to be enlightened. Hold on. To what we got. It doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. We got each other, and that's a lot for love. Why doesn't Bon Jovi on your list? Oh, we're halfway there. Whoa, living on a prayer. Take my hand, we'll make it, I swear. Oh, living on a prayer. Living on a prayer. <laughs> Welcome to the Book Stops Here podcast. Did I'm, you re- the, I'm the beef. I'm the Mick, and did you record that? Oh, yeah, that was recorded. That's going in? That's, oh, okay, that's cool. how we're starting, which... I think it's a good thing that we're, we're starting off lighthearted. Soothing voice. Yeah, we got to start lighthearted on this lighthearted one. Lighthearted on this one. Yep. We are reviewing 1984 by George Orwell. Yes. 1984 is a documentary about the future. <laughs> I'm glad you started off like that. That's exactly how. You're going like, to have to laugh about this one, man. This it's is gonna dark be... as Fuck. really hard to laugh about this <laughs> yeah i made i made the choice of of mixing this fiction with uh i just told you earlier but the audience doesn't know i made the choice of mixing this fiction with also watching attack on titan and let me tell you my mind has been Woo. going to some dark ass places yeah 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 that's not a good combo <laughs> no it's not no i should have mixed it up i should have watched like uh i don't know spirited away or some shit yeah so uh i'm gonna pull up the uh, yeah, the Wikipedia, which if you've been paying attention to any of the news recently, not the most reliable source. We'll get to it. But uh, 1984 is a dystopian social science fiction novel and cautionary tale. Well, I'm surprised I left that in here. Yeah, that would... Written by English writer George Orwell. That's silly. The stuff in this book would never happen in real life. <laughs> it was published on June 8th, 1949 by Secker and Warburg as Orwell's ninth and final book completed in his lifetime. Thematically, it centers on the consequences of totalitarianism, mass surveillance, and repressive regimentation of people and behaviors within society. Uh, Orwell, a democratic socialist, modeled the totalitarian government in the novel after Stalinist Russia and Nazi Germany. That's going to be important later. Yes. More broadly, the novel examines the role of truth and facts within politics and the ways in which they are manipulated. Uh, Understatement. So that's just... (laughs) Understatement. (laughs) Amen. Yeah. Amen. So, yeah. It was written in 48, published in 49, and... uh, I guess we'll just get started. Any more thoughts on Orwell, the author? I didn't know of him all that much. Um, all I know him from is, so we, we read uh, some some essays in school by Orwell, like on writing. And I also read these in college because oh, okay. we, we had to do like an analysis of them and things like that. I see. Like, why do you write and things? Oh. And then um, he also, or maybe that was where I read them the first time. We also had uh, his book, uh, Animal Farm, which is an almost exact retelling of the formation of uh, the USSR. Yep. And uh, the transfer from Lenin and Trotsky over to Stalinism. Okay. Yeah. Animal Farm's another one that's spooky to read. 
Yeah. And and it's even scary because it's it's really a true story. Yes. It's just told using animals as a parable, but it really is a true story. Yep. So chapter one, uh, you are introduced to the main character, Winston Smith. He describes the city of London, you know, and it's a cold, dreary, dystopian place, like very unlifelike. Uh there's posters of this vague, uh, imposing man. Yeah, it's and a, they call him Big Brother. Yeah, he, he. They never assign an actual name to him. It's just Big Brother. And basically, it's like Uncle Sam almost. Kind of, sort of. He seems like more of a, a, a more of an a symbol than yes. he is an actual. Uh, and we'll get to it more. In, in depth yeah, as we because go it on. does describe the nature of Big yep. Brother. Uh, so there's also a poster of Ingsoc, which is the, like the political. That's the actual name of the party where yep. the political ideology is Ingsoc, which is English socialism. <laughs> uh, he talks about how he has an itchy ulcer on his leg, varicose veins, uh, not really that healthy of a person. No, and he's, he's the, at the ripe old age of 39. Yeah, exactly. So and he's, he's is, describing himself like he's in his 50s or 60s. Yeah, he, he, he's described as being in his like 50s and 60s, but he's 39. He yeah. describes himself as old. Yep. Uh, he talks about the telescreen, which this is 1948. So, or no, in the book, they're in the 70s or no, they're in 84. They're in, yeah, the book takes place in 1984. Okay, sorry. The sorry. telescreen is a, a two-way TV screen. So they can see you and you can see them. Yeah, basically describing your smartphone in your pocket right now. No, more or less, yeah. Yeah, only in this... It's, this, it's, there, it's uh, you're, you're forced to FaceTime at all times. Yes, so... Every in, room you're in has a telescreen that's basically FaceTiming somebody else. In the reality that Winston Smith is in, the, they don't have cellular telephones. The telescreen, the two-way you know, FaceTime, is a stationary piece of technology. So their telescreens like mounted on every street corner in like random places and alleys mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, and where they can't get a telescreen, he describes that they have microphones in places. Yeah, there's microphones everywhere. And then uh, he describes the thought police, basically this secret police that monitors everybody through these telescreens. Mm-hmm. And basically just make sure that everybody is... They're looking for any kind of unorthodoxy. Yes. Now, a lot of the things that he talks about in this book aren't banned. They're nope. not banned. Nope. They just, they don't need to be banned because... It's an if unknown you, rule, you, or yep. a known rule, I mean, unspoken. Yep. I'm it's sorry. like an unspoken yeah. rule. Yes. They're not banned at all. Like, none of these things... He, there's not legal consequences for these things because the thought police don't take place in any kind of rule of law. There's no court. There's no court. There's, there's no, like... A, there's, like, you know, obviously a ceremonial court, per se, that you would get taken in front of if you're allowed to live. Yeah, it, <laughs> and if you confess to a crime, which you will confess to oh, a crime. You confess, yes. You'll, you'll, everyone confesses. Uh, he describes that there are these patrols that are always out and about looking for people that are unorthodox, out of place. There's, uh, there's these, oh, he describes his job, which is at the Ministry of Truth. And so there's three ministries. Yeah. There's the Ministry of Truth, the Ministry of Peace. Well, actually there's four, isn't there? Because there's a Ministry of Truth, 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 Love, Peace, and Plenty. Yep. So the Ministry of Truth is in charge of, uh, 
what the party says is the truth. Basically the propaganda arm. It's basically the propaganda arm. Uh, they deal with lies. Yep. The uh, Ministry of Peace is really about war. Yep. And waging waging offensive war. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a, well. Do you want? Do we want to get into parallels this early or no? No, don't. Ju- no, just uh, it's a bit of a bit of a misnomer. Just, so yeah, there's and then the four- ministry. The Ministry of Plenty is uh, really about the rationing. They're in charge of rationing what gets out to the people. Yes. And um, and then the Ministry of Love, which is really about um, torture. That's, that's and torturing interrogation. the inter- interrogating the yep. thought criminals. So he described describes that he lives in the country of Oceana, uh, which is basically the Americas, Africa, the southern tip of Africa, so South Africa, yep. and then Europe. No, not 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 Europe. It's um, it's oh no, yeah, Britain, the, Br- the British Isles, the British Isles, um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, like Greenland, Iceland, yeah. So that's Oceana. That's Oceana. Uh, they're ramping up for hate week, uh, which he describes as like a week of continuous hate. Uh, he, he briefly describes it in this chapter. They go into more depth later on. Uh, he briefly talks about newspeak and doublespeak, which newspeak is the official language mm-hmm. of uh, Ingsoc yeah, it's, and it's, Oceana. It's, it's a new set of terms and it's really a simplification of the English language down to really um, remove any kind of uh, ambiguity of meaning. Yep, because so they want everybody to be rigid and inside of this very specific framework yep. so that, like you said, nobody can be unorthodox. Everybody has to be the same mm-hmm. and be very uniform. And basically. really, the only the, so they've gotten rid of concepts like freedom, liberty, things like that, and they're replacing them with the word thought crime. Yes. So, or crime think. And that would be the newspeak word that would encompass all things that are unorthodox, for example. Yep. Exactly. So, he goes on to say the uh, slogan of the party. Is it the slogan, right? So, there's there's a bunch of slogans that the party uses. But the main The one... main three... It's, it's it's really three. It's yeah. one, but it's three. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. And uh, so that's like the main three points that the party like stamps on everything. Uh, then it does go in and talks about the different ministries, the Ministry of Peace, and they uh, they shorten it down. Min peace, mini peace, or mini packs. Yeah, because packs is the Latin for peace. Yep, mini packs, mini love. Men plenty. Um, he talks about some of the goods. Everything is called victory. So it's the victory cigarettes, the victory gin. Um, talks about how he, this is his first like uh, out, uh, acting out like he's sick and tired of his life and all the contradictions that he sees all the time. And he's like, I broke down and went into this little shabby shop and bought a blank diary on the black market. And uh, he talks about how at his apartment, because everybody has an apartment, he, um, I don't think, it didn't talk about it yet. Um, he's in the outer party. Mm-hmm. So, so there's there's the, the, the outer party, which is, or I'm sorry, there's the inner party, which is like your upper class. Yep. Is maybe 
3% of the population. Yep. You have the outer party, which is your middle class, which is maybe 12, 13% of the population, then 85% of the population, whoever's left, those are the proletariat, or they call them the proles. Yes. And uh, so he's in the outer party, and basically everybody's issued a standard issue apartment. Nothing fancy about it. Um, but his has a weird... His a weird, like, a unique kink to it. Yeah, there's a little cubby in his living room that he can sit in where there's no telescreen looking yep. at him. He, the telescreen can't see him from there. It's, and he says it's the only place he can go where he can really relax because whenever the, he's in front of telescreens or out in public or anything, he's like, you always have to be very aware of your facial expressions yep. because your expression the, can give you away. Exactly. And he calls it thought crime, basically, mm -hmm. because. And he even talks about, he's like, some people, the people who talk in their sleep. Yeah, people who talk in their sleep. They, in fact, uh, uh, later in the book, I'm sure we'll get into it. Yeah. Uh, there is a guy from his work who gets uh, rounded up yep. and sent to, sent to the mini love yep. because he's uh, talking in his sleep and he says something uh, unorthodox. Yep. So he's, he's sitting in this cubby with this blank diary where the telescreen can't see him. And he's like having this real moment where he's like, should I use this diary? You know, if the moment I lay my pen on this paper, I am committing an act of rebellion basically. And he begins with the date. And then he recalls a memory while recording in his diary about a movie he saw the previous night, which is about a helicopter of Oceana gunning down these refugees in a boat. And it basically specifically it's about, a Jewish woman in a boat trying to protect her child from the helicopter and the helicopter massacres, the whole refugee boat with machine guns only to the party members, uh, really like passionately applauding the scene. And then there's only one person in the whole movie theater that protests it. And it's a prole. Yep. Yep. And I do believe, don't they get hauled away? Yeah. And they yep. get hauled away. Yep. And uh, so when Winston's done recording, it triggers a memory from the previous day of the Ministry of Truth. He describes uh, they're preparing for the two minutes of hate because every day there's this two minutes where they all basically get their anger out of themselves. Yeah, they, they, they go to like a movie theater and or they, a little ad hoc movie theater on a screen and they show them like the enemies of the party. And people are encouraged and honestly, unspoken rule, but required yeah. to to scream at the screen and throw things at the screen and get angry. And it, it's just getting people riled up. I, 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 this, I don't know how you feel about this, but I kind of see this kind of like when we're all required to stand up and put either pledge allegiance to the flag or uh, when the national anthem gets played and it you know there's a big row in the last five ten years mm -hmm. about taking a knee during the national anthem and stuff like that i saw this as a direct parallel to um news and social media and okay. people's performative anger oh that yeah that's a good point so yeah, so okay um, there were people like and i saw it in my facebook memories recently because uh do you remember that lion that got killed and it was all over the news a couple of years ago Cecil the lion yeah cecil the yeah. lion yeah that was in the news 
um, I want to say four or five years ago. Okay. Maybe six years ago. Okay. And uh, I remember how everybody, suddenly everybody cared about lions, but you people don't actually care about lions. That's a good point. You've never said anything about lions. I've known you for 20 years and you never said a fucking thing about lions. <laughs> and now you care about lions. Yeah. Other than the ones that lose on every Sunday during the fall. <laughs> so, like, like, and and so I saw it as really referencing the performative nature yeah. of, of, like, anger, uh, that's a good point, and, actually. And really, like, the news, which in, in sometimes uh, podcasts or social media and stuff like that, it's meant to gin you up. Yeah. Um, yep. I saw a lot of parallels between this and, like, 2020. Oh, yeah. So I saw, like, the, the performative nature. Remember, everyone had black squares? Yep. It's like, you, you've never talked about racial issues. No. Nope. And now you suddenly care because yeah. one guy. Oh, and it just, and you're so heroic for coming out on that particular side. Too. Yeah. Now, like, so and, courageous. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. All your black friends know you're one of the good ones now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was so courageous It was, it was of you. so performative. Yeah. And yeah. so I saw a huge parallel yeah, you're between right. that stuff and Th- this. That's a good point. Uh, so he talked about seeing this young, attractive woman with brunette hair and he especially hates her in this moment because she's attractive, but also because he notes all the young pretty women are celibate because sex isn't accepted in this world. And uh, he also claims that the young pretty ones are also the ones that are the most ardent and the most passionate about upholding the slogans and enforcing the party's will. I saw another parallel with this one. Me too. It's like young, uh, young oh, yeah. college-educated white women. Yep. It's the fucking white well, liberal the, women. The, the the party, man. Yep. The party above all. They're the most reliable ones to like be the activists that you want in any given circumstance. Oh, they, yeah. are, they are reliable when it comes to that, just demographically. And that's just a simple fact. Yep. Whether you agree with them or not. Right. So I was like, yeah, yeah, there's something to that. And, and I think he was, kind of, and you know, it's probably a thing in his day too. Well, he's writing this book. He probably noted that a lot of times young women are the ones that are behind a lot of these movements. It seems like it. He also talks about how he saw O'Brien for the first time, or not the first time, but one of the few times he'd ever seen him over the past so many years. Uh, He describes how the two minutes of hate goes, um, how it starts out slow, but then gradually increases and makes, stirs people up into a frenzy. And then, the face of Emmanuel Goldstein shows up, who is like the face of the rebellion, the supposed rebellion that uh, the Oceana and Ingsoc is constantly fighting against because this evil Emmanuel Goldstein is just stirring up a rebellion and constantly undermining the party's will and, uh, you know, stealing food from starving children and you know he's the boogeyman no matter what happens mm-hmm. um da, 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 da. so um some of the things goldstein talks about are what we would consider really common sense kind of like liberal with a small l values yeah um things like freedom of speech uh freedom of assembly um he he uh he goes on about why uh Oceana is wrong and and why the party is evil. Yeah, and this is all in counter to the party's like uh you know m- what they the uh their mission, you know, all this stuff like freedom of slavery according to the party, you know. So talking about any type of 
liberty it would be you know treason basically <laughs> uh and then as they have goldstein giving the speech on the screen during the two minutes of hate uh they start to show hundreds and thousands of the enemy country eurasia's army we've marching we've at always them. been at war with eurasia yep and eurasia is like the current enemy Oh, they've always been the enemy. Well, yes, they've been fighting them forever. Always. Yeah. Well, no, it, it's just them. <laughs> it's just Eurasia. We've always been at war with Eurasia. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah. This, so, despite the, uh, yeah, basically, despite everybody knowing that O'Brien is or Emmanuel Goldstein is this enemy, somehow he's always still around, mm-hmm. like. To Winston, he's noting this, like, how can this guy, like, constantly evade the party? It doesn't make any sense. Um, And then he thinks about, he actually makes eye contact with O'Brien briefly, and he says they share an unspoken moment where he's like, O'Brien might be a part of the resistance. And then he thinks he remembers seeing O'Brien do a sneaky pass in the hallway, handing off to somebody else. Um. At this time, Winston comes out of his trance and realizes that he had been writing in the diary, down with Big Brother, down with Big Brother, down with Big Brother. So basically, he relived this memory that he had from work and the O'Brien moment and the two minutes of hate. And the whole time, he's just like writing in his diary that he wants the government to fall. Um, He also talks about the thought police and how it doesn't matter how long you keep quiet about your treasonous thoughts. Eventually, they will come get you in the middle of the night, disappear you, basically. And then at that very moment, there's a knock at his door. So at the end of chapter one, he's in the middle of writing his thoughts in his diary that's treason just to have the diary, pretty much. And then he hears a knock at the door, so he shits his pants. Uh (laughs) Uh, at this point, Winston's neighbors, the Parsons, uh, the wife comes over to ask for a hand unclogging her sink because in this dystopian, like everybody's apartments falling apart, mm-hmm. you know, everything's, everything's shoddy. In, everything's in a state of disrepair. It's disrepair. Everybody's poor and nothing works right. Uh, Winston agrees to go help. He mentioned that he works with her husband. Uh, I can't remember his name, first name. I don't know. It's just referred to as Parsons or something. It's called Parsons. But her husband, the Parsons' husband, is on the Committee for Sports and Community Planning. And as he's fixing the sink, the Parsons' children, uh, he calls them little hellions, or she called them little hellions. And Winston goes on to talk about how all the children are like little assholes. So, and that the party uses children as spies to find... The, in fact, the children's organization is literally just called spies. Yeah, they're called the spies or something like that. Yeah, it, and, and children are essentially the eyes and ears. Yep. So they, the, a lot of the rooting out of... Um, a lot of the rooting out of unorthodoxy comes from the children reporting their parents. Yep, which is just scary. <laughs> and, and it's also uh, relevant because yeah. how many people have been canceled because their kids said something? Well, and then this whole covid shit when they were doing zoom calls remember there was a thing where the kid had like a toy gun uh, on the zoom call with his teacher and they called the cops on him and had the cops go to the house a lot of modern politics has to do with or i wouldn't necessarily say politics but like the culture war shit a lot of it revolves around children yeah 
people trying to influence children and 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 fucking scary and i mean again predictive he he called it yeah it's fucking scary 60 years ago he saw it coming oh yeah so then uh on the telescreen they announce a victory in the war followed by disappointing news that the chocolate ration was reduced (laughs) (laughs) and oh so it's it's just common propaganda tactics where they're like oh yeah lead with the really good thing and then quietly say the bad thing behind it slip it in behind yeah uh Winston listens to the telescreen announcements, and he ignores the national anthem where he is supposed to stand and begins writing in his diary. So he's back in his little cubby back in his apartment. And he realizes that he's writing, that he's accepting that he's already dead. So, And this is a common theme throughout the book where, like, at the end of everything, as he's thinking, he's like, I'm already dead. Yeah, he's like, there's nothing. We're, I, I'm, we're, I'm already going to die. We're dead. Like, yep. his whole thing is so futile. Uh so chapter three, Winston's dreaming of his mother when he thought he was 10 or 11 years old when his mother had disappeared. So both of his parents disappeared. And uh, he thinks that they were purged during one of the great first purges of the 50s because the revolution happened in the late 40s, early 50s. Something like that, yeah. It was like before the 60s, he said. Mm-hmm. And uh, he continues to dream about... Uh, his childhood, and then he was woken by the telescreen giving a shrill note for 30 seconds, which is basically everybody gets woken up at the same time. And then uh, he called them the physical jerks, basically these, like, coaches that make everybody get up and do a physical calisthenic in the morning. And they're watching you. So, like, they're watching probably a group of people on their own. And if you don't... If you're not participating or if you're, like, lagging behind, they'll actually call you out. Yep. Because he gets called out by one of the people on his telescreen. Yep. And uh, and basically, again, the whole time he's trying to control his facial expression so he doesn't show any weakness or any, like, uh, unhappiness, unhappiness or... or exasperation. Like, mm-hmm. you can't show any weakness whatsoever, otherwise you'll be singled out. Um, during the calisthenic, he recalls a childhood memory and realizes that Airstrip 1 used to be Great Britain, but London has always been London. And uh, he can't remember a time not at war. It was evident that there had been an interval of peace during his childhood, and he thinks he does remember when people were surprised by bombs being dropped, especially the A-bomb that fell on Colchester. Um, So nukes were used at some point around the time of the Revolution. And then since about the time the nuke was dropped, the war had been literally continuous. However, strictly speaking, it had not always been the same war as Winston. Oh, it had not always been the same war. As Winston is exercising, he reflects for the 10,000th time and did the frightening thing is it all might be true if the party could thrust its hand into the past and say of this or that event, it never happened. That surely was more terrifying than mere torture or death. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with the like like the fact that essentially this party I mean they can't change physical reality not truly but they can change everyone's perception of it to make people believe that things didn't happen or or things uh do you think that's worse than like the 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 horrible outcome that could befall an individual Like let's let's just do, say do let's just say you're, you're, are more if you're terrifying? if you're fighting if you're saying? fighting these if let's just say you're you're Winston Smith Right 
What scares you more, the potential of torture and death or the potential that um, everyone's going to forget you ever existed and everything you've done is going to be erased? Ooh. Um, I mean... To me, that's scarier than the, yeah. the concept of... As I was say... If, if your death means something, but that's the absolute... That's the definition of your death doesn't mean something. Right. Because they're just going to make erase the fact that you ever existed. Yep. Yep. No, I... I I I mean, but here's the thing. I mean, did you see the interview of the woman that escaped from North Korea? I can't remember her name. Uh, Yanmi Park. Yeah. Remember when she was talking about being hungry and she's mm-hmm. like, all I ever fucking cared about was food. Mm-hmm. And she's like, nothing else mattered to me. Yeah. And that's actually why she left. I know. She wasn't like, it wasn't making like a conscious political no. decision to leave she's North like, Korea. She's like, I just want food. <laughs> she just saw some lights in the distance and was like, well, maybe they have food over there. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I think, and... They use this in the book. Mm-hmm. They like make you go more animalistic. Yep. They they, they 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 basically reduce you down to your animal instincts. Yep. And I think unfortunately that ultimately that's that that's like that's something uh, tangible compared mm-hmm. to the thought of being forgotten or whatever. So I think most people would say that torture and death is. Is worse than uh, is worse than being forgotten or them having the universal power to you know mm-hmm. manipulate the past. Uh, the party slogan quote: "Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past." Uh, it was quite simple. All that was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Quote: "Real control." Unquote. They called it in Newspeak. Quote: "Double think." Unquote. Yeah, so that's that's what double think is because double think is super important is to to make the willful decision. It's the mental gymnastics you see yeah, lots really of people is. go through where yeah, they just read Twitter. <laughs> it's, it's all double think. <laughs> exactly. Everything on Twitter. <laughs> yes. So uh, I pulled this quote out. Uh, Winston sank his arms to his sides and slowly refilled his lungs with air. His mind slid away into the labyrinthine world of doublethink. To know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. To use logic against logic. To repudiate morality while laying claim to it. To believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy to forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly to forget it again, and above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety, consciously to induce unconsciousness, and then once again to become unconscious of the act of hypnosis you had just performed, even to understand the word doublethink involved the use of doublethink. What a fucking mindfuck. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I mean, that's is there anything a more accurate descriptor of modern political discourse? No. No, there and is it, not. The, like this book is a mind fuck. It really is. It's a real mind fuck. But at the same time, um it, it's real. Like this is this is kind of the world we live in. It's happening right now. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. So Taking gaslighting to new heights, the White House changes the definition of recession. So this is from the White House. What is a recession? While some maintain that two consecutive quarters of of falling real GDP constitutes a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. 
Yeah, that's, that's from the that's, White House. That's correct. That's only the commonly understood definition of a recession. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like saying, well, water isn't, you know, isn't liquid ice. It's actually H2O. So it's the a, same thing. A recession has long been defined in common parlance as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And this is straight from where this they source this from. I mean, it looks like uh Dexter or Webster. Webster, sorry. Uh, so basically, the last two quarters of GDP have been negative, which means we're technically in a recession. Yes. But the White House doesn't want there to be a recession because it's bad politics and it's going to affect the election this November. So they're playing word games and this double think shit. And it really is. I mean, you see it all the time. Um, Honestly, whenever I see it, I just reply, we've always been at war with Eurasia. <laughs> I, I saw your Twitter comments a couple times. Yeah. Uh, and, and just dropping them in there, man. So after... They know he, what they're doing. After Winston talks about doublethink, he remembers that there was a definite lie. The party claims that they invented airplanes when he knows for sure there was airplanes before the party existed. And then the chapter ends with the woman on the telescreen leading the exercises, yelling at a man that he could touch his toes and that the man on the front lines and in the floating, floating fortresses don't have it as easy. Winston says that he manages to touch his toes without bending his knees for the first time in several years. So basically he's stressed and pissed off and he's like pushing himself physically. Uh, chapter four. So Winston works in the Ministry of Truth, and his job is to alter any previous articles in the newspapers, books, periodicals, pamphlets, posters, leaflets, films, soundtracks, cartoons, photo photographs, and every kind of literature or documentation which might conceivably hold any political or ideological significance. So basically, he works in a government department where they revise history to make it always seem like they're correct about whatever statement they put out yeah i wish i could find the uh the quote there's a there's a really really good quote about this um and it's about after everything has been changed just a never-ending history where the party is always right so oh yeah i'm i kind of paraphrase it i think winston talks about how rectifying previous articles of newspapers they have to sometimes pad the numbers of predictions of production from certain sects of the economy he says by, that by the end of it, nobody really knows how much of anything has been produced or if it was even produced at all. In his example, he used boots. So basically, Winston's describing his work environment, um, describes a woman who he thinks her husband was vaporized. Vaporized is basically uh, a term for being disappeared. Like, uh, if somebody's vaporized, it means the thought police broke in at night, most likely kidnapped them and took them to the Ministry of Love for torture and confession. Uh, he talks about how big men, men truth is in all the different departments. Uh, poetry is still allowed, but it's looked down upon. But it's continued to be created for some reason, and how there's a whole section of the building dedicated to producing proletariat content. Um, so basically just like uh, material, articles, books, whatever for the proles. He also talks about how there are people that direct all of this and decide what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and what needs to be rectified. 
but that nobody really knows who they are or what they do. So like there are people that approve and decide what they're going to put out, but the people in the outer party don't know who the hell it is that's making these decisions. Okay. Here, here's the quote. Okay. Um, sorry about that. No. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Yep. That's exactly the way it is in this book. And it seems like it's slowly happening in our lives, too, because they're pulling down statues. They're slowly pruning, you know, what's acceptable to read and watch. Renaming streets. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh no, you can't buy Dr. Seuss now. Yeah, no shit. Can't buy a certain Dr. Seuss. Yep. Uh, Winston admits that his greatest pleasure in life was his work. Uh, Winston moves on to his third assignment of the day, which is an article talking about a Withers that was awarded a medal and was associated with an organization called the FFCC, and he was ordered to edit the article or get rid of it. Basically, Winston thinks it's because it was a political purge and says that it was unusual for political offenders to be put on trial or even publicly denounced. The great purges involving thousands of people with public trials of traitors and thought criminals who made abject confession of their crimes and were afterwards executed were special showpieces, not occurring oftener than once in a couple years. More commonly, people who had incurred the displeasure of the party simply disappeared and were never heard of again. One never had the smallest clue as to what had happened to them in some cases. They might not even be dead, perhaps. Thirty people, personally known to Winston, not counting his parents, had disappeared at one time or another. As Winston starts to work on the third and final assignment of his day, he talks about how he should rewrite the article to make Big Brother sound like he's going to create a fictional character. Mm, I don't know what that means. This is where the dic- dictation software <laughs> fails. So I remember this part of the book. So okay, uh, he was going to create a fictional character, um, who could be uh, recognized in his like like he's creating a fictional character basically to fill in the blanks of where this other guy was. Yeah, so that's right. Okay. This guy basically he uh, he did all this great stuff, and he was associated. But basically, he rewrote the story to be about something. Um, totally different yep. to be about a war hero receiving a medal mm-hmm. and uh, the war hero didn't exist is it's a completely fictional fabricated person yep so yeah. uh, and but then it's going to go down in the histories as you know yep that guy was a war hero and he did all this stuff and <laughs> yep. you know meanwhile the person the story was originally about is just gone he just disappears yep uh so let me go on to chapter five winston talks about a friend named sim who is a philologist, a specialist in Newspeak. And uh, he was on the enormous team of experts now engaged in compiling the 11th edition of the Newspeak Dictionary. Uh, They engage in a conversation after they get their lunch about the future of Newspeak and Doublespeak. Sim is incredibly excited about the future and how they are not expanding the vocabulary, but actually shrinking it down, getting rid of black and leaving white, Towards the end of the conversation, Winston acknowledges that Sim is too smart and eventually will be vaporized. Winston talks about how Sim frequents the Chestnut Tree Cafe, which is basically where some like old like artistic people used to go. 
There's no law, not even an unwritten law, against frequenting the Chestnut Tree Cafe, yet the place was somehow ill-omened. Uh, the old discredited leaders of the party had been used to gather there before they were finally purged. Goldstein himself, it was said, had sometimes been seen there years and decades ago. Sim's fate was not difficult to foresee. Sim doesn't like Winston's neighbor, the Parsons. Uh, Parson sits down with them and shakes Winston down for two bucks for the Victory Mansions Fund to buy flags for hate week. <clears throat> then he talks about his children and how he disciplines his children for shooting at Winston with the catapult. Oh, I forgot. In Chapter 2, the children are shooting a catapult at Winston when he's helping unclog their Now, sink. did you interpret that as an actual catapult? I saw that as like a slingshot. Oh, yeah. Maybe it was a slingshot. Okay. That's, I don't know. It said catapult, so I just... Yeah, it, it says catapult, but I was like, in our terminology, a catapult's like a giant-ass siege weapon, you know? True. Uh, uh, so, yeah, he bragged about disciplining his children, then bragged about how his daughter went to camp, snuck off from the hike, and followed a strange man through the woods with a couple friends and turned over the strange man to the patrols. And then as Winston and Parsons and Tim are sitting at the table eating lunch, the telescreen comes on, and it's the Ministry of Plenty rattling off all their figures, claiming they've produced more than they ever had before. Once the announcement is done, Parsons talks about how their numbers are great, and then Winston goes into a kind of a trance, thinking about how Winston Parsons' wife, about how Winston... See, it failed you again. And soon we'll all be vaporized eventually. Also... O'Brien. Then he notices that the girl sitting at the table next to him, listening to the guy quack, is looking at him, which scares him and makes him think that she's trying to keep track of him. Yeah, one of the funny things about this was, uh, like, they call it duck speak. Yeah. It's when, because new speak and uh, the way they want people to talk is in this really short staccato way. Yeah. And people describe it as sounding like a duck. So yep. so if you're saying it the way you, they want you to, uh, you sound like a duck quacking. and they, it's a, <laughs> So it's a compliment. To say someone is good at duck speak. Yep. Uh, now we're on to chapter six. Winston is writing in his diary about his interaction with a prostitute, which is forbidden, uh, because the only thing you're allowed to love is the party. You're not allowed, or they're okay with. They'll let it. They'll let love, it slide. They'll, but they're not okay with uh, attract being a like very attracted. To the opposite sex. No, they honestly don't want you to love anyone but the party. But yeah. they'll, 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 so they'll let you hire a prostitute because that's not really love and it's not really, there's not that much there. There's nothing there. So, um, it's still frowned upon. It's frowned upon, but it's one of those minor things where, yeah, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't get you like a long trip to the, to the, cause it, it's unorthodox, but it's not that big of a deal. Yep. Um, he talks about how, you know, uh, if you have a wife that you're seriously attracted to, now that's a big deal. It's They're not going to allow that to happen. Allow that to happen. You're whenever you're doing like your marriage has to go in front of a committee. And basically, they approve it. And they're not gonna they're not gonna let you marry somebody that you're actually into. Yeah. Yep. And uh, he, I think in this one, yeah. So he talks about how the party doesn't want married couples to be attracted to each other. They're just there for procreation, basically. And they're okay with them being in love. Just know that it, there's no erotic attraction. He remembers his wife, whom he supposedly is still married to, but they're only married for 15 months, you know, like together married. Mm -hmm. Like they're still technically married on paper, but she left him. 
And uh, he remembers that she was fairly attractive, and he said he would have been able to stay with her, but she was incredibly dull and was a walking party slogan. Uh, every time he would try to touch her in an intimate way, she would stiffen up like a board, and he said her image was wooden. Desire was thought crime, even to have awakened... Yeah, even to have awakened Catherine. Oh, even if he could have awakened Catherine, it would have been like a seduction, although she was his wife. The chapter ends with him realizing in his old memory of being with a prostitute that when he turned on the light in the basement of the prostitute's house, he saw that she had she was actually an older woman with gray in her hair, and the makeup on her face was really thick and nasty, and she had no teeth. But he did it anyways. I mean, who hasn't been there at least once or twice? Yep. Well, I mean... <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Tell me more. Uh, no. But Winston is just describing like what it's like to be a male bachelor that is capable of thought, like critical thought, mm -hmm. in this dystopia. Like He's like incredibly lonely and basically has accepted that he's going he, he to die. Honestly, it's his biggest weakness is that he's just lonely. Yeah. He's just looking for any kind of intellectual stimulation. Yeah. He's he's literally trapped in his own head. Basically, yeah. Uh, chapter 7. He talks about the proles, and he's like, these are the people that are eventually going to rise up and save us kind of thing. But he remembers a time when he was walking down the street and he heard a bunch of voices yelling up ahead and he thinks that maybe the proles started the rebellion only to find out it was a bunch of people in line to buy cooking pots and the supply dried up because of <laughs> the shortages. And then there was a fight breaking out over pots. And then uh, he's like, until they become conscious, they will never rebel. And until after they have rebelled, they cannot become conscious. <laughs> so he's like, there's just no fucking hope again. You know, just not seeing a light at the end of the tunnel he actually tries to have i don't know if this is where but uh um i think this is the part of the book where he tries to have uh conversations with proles yep he does about literally anything and they can't focus for more than like a minute no uh he talks about the proles were born they grew up in the gutters they went to work at 12 they passed through a brief blossoming period of beauty and sexual desire they married at 20 they were middle-aged at 30 they died for the most part at 60, heavy physical work, the care of home and children, petty quarrels with neighbors, films, football, beer, and above all gambling filled up the horizon of their minds. To keep them in control was not difficult. So basically describing uh, the average American. <laughs> Honestly, so so if, you, if you're listening to this, go find one of your normie friends and try to talk to them about how 1984 relates to the current political environment. They'll have no fucking they're, idea they're, what you're they're talking They're going to just kind of nod along. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And yeah. then they'll you know talk about celebrity gossip or some shit. Exactly. Actually, if you listen to this, you probably don't have any normie friends. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason only like 12 people listen to this. Yep. Um, another quote. A few agents have thought police... Okay, a few agents of the thought police moved always among... The proles, spreading false rumors and marking down and eliminating the few individuals who were judged capable of becoming dangerous. Oh, you thought that being a prole would give you like because the proles anonymity. Don't, yeah, they, they thought well the proles don't have nearly as much uh, suspicion on them as like the the party 
party members and things like that, especially outer party members. Yep. They, you know, they, the proles are left alone for the most part. They can have their little vices. And but they, they were have, still monitored. But they were still monitored. And it's like, oh, you think you could do that and think freely? Ha, <laughs> joke's nope. on you. The second they're going to notice that, oh, that prole over there is starting to understand. Uh, yeah. Starting to think like a person. Mm-hmm. And, and disappear you go. Yep. Poof. Um, All that required with them was a primitive patriotism which could be appealed to whenever it was necessary to make them accept longer working hours or shorter rations and even when they became discontented as they sometimes did their discontent led nowhere because being without general ideas they could only focus it on petty specific grievances to larger evils and invariably escape their notice um as the party slogan put it proles and animals are free so there's only two things that the party claims are allowed to be free, and that is animals and the proles. <laughs> um, Winston opens a children's history textbook he borrowed from a teacher, and it talks about how evil the capitalists were in former London and how everybody was starving and destitute. But then at the very end of all of his descriptions of capitalism, it says the chief of all the capitalists was called the king. It's like, you can't be a king and claim to be a, I don't know, can you be a capitalist and a king? Well, I see capitalism as a, an economic system and, and monarchy a, as, a, as a social and political system. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. I suppose, but... Um, I mean, this, I mean they're pin, pin, they're really, Pinochet, you know, claimed to be yeah. a free market capitalist. They're, they're, uh, he was, as long as you were yep. one too. Uh, <laughs> now, he... I think what the the party is doing is they're really using capitalism as a buzzword. Okay, yeah. And what they're really attacking is the old social and political hierarchy. Gotcha. Yeah, you're right. Because they want because that that I mean, and let, let's be real, Ingzak is um, similar in nature to socialism as we know it today. Right. Communism in Nazi Germany. Okay. Yeah. It's really or fascism. It's really along a lot of those lines. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, like, did they not refer to literally everyone as capitalists? Okay. Did they not refer to like any any of the 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 bourgeoisie? Yeah. They use different words. Oh yeah. The 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 um I forget what the word was for the landowning farmers in the oh, Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, I can't. Kudaks. Yeah, kulaks. Kulaks. There we go. Yeah, the kulaks. Uh, yeah, the the Germans, uh, the Italians. Everything is of the state. So if you were a business that didn't, you know, you were allowed to operate freely as long as you were of the state. Right. As long as you put the state first. But if you didn't put the state first, if you tried to operate independently, yep. can't do it. So um really they're 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 it's it's showing that they're all really cut from the same cloth. And you're kind of seeing I see. I know they, they call him a democratic socialist and say the book is endorsement of democratic socialism, but it doesn't have a whole lot positive to say about socialism in general. No. Uh, no it's it really not it's not a ringing endorsement. No, no way. <laughs> It doesn't, this book does not say, hey, this is the way things should be done. No. It says, this is the way things should not be done. Yep. Um, so the, he, uh, <laughs> is this the one? Oh, no. So Winston recalls that he had come across evidence that would show that the party is pushing propaganda and lies to the population. Oh, yeah. This goes the, up again. The story of the three traitors, Jones, Aronson, uh, oh, Jones, Aronson, and Rutherford, and their first trial, confession, and release how he went to the same cafe as them and witnessed what it sounded like was torture through the telescreen, and finally how at work he was given evidence that showed that their confessions were flat-out lies. 
so basically there's these three guys and they were probably former like uh party the, members party members that maybe helped uh during the revolution it sounded mm-hmm. like and then they were basically thrown under the bus by new uh leaders or whoever was taking control of the party and uh they had a huge trial they confessed to everything they did and then they were eventually released well winston ran into him at this cafe and he noticed they were all sitting at a table nobody wanted to be near him obviously because every, you know everybody knew better <laughs> like uh even though they were released you're still not smart to be near him and then uh as they were sitting there drinking their coffee all of a sudden uh a really loud screeching noise came from the uh telescreen next to them and something about how it made them violent or is that what happened i can't remember it was uh yeah it it was kind of weird because it said that one of them had their nose broken and some other stuff i don't know if it was oh no i think that was their old injuries oh oh he just noticed that they had major injuries on their face yep Okay. Yeah, they they had been injured uh, through the interrogations and torture that they went through. But yeah, he was given evidence that showed that their confessions were flat-out lies. And the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. His heart sank as he thought of the enormous power arrayed against him, the ease with which any party intellectual would overthrow him and debate the subtle arguments which he would not be able to understand, much less answer. And yet he was right. They were wrong. And he was right. The obvious, the silly, and the true had got to be defended. Truisms are true. Hold on to that. The solid world exists. Its laws do not change. Stones are hard. Water is wet. Objects unsupported fall or the earth center with the feeling that he was speaking to O'Brien. And also that he was setting forth an important axiom. He wrote, Freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two makes four. If that is granted, all else follows. Yeah, uh, that would never happen in real life. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember a couple of years ago when uh, on Twitter there was a bunch of these like like intellectual like like people, these philosoph- philosophical like I don't know philosophers and shit like that, and they were trying to make the case that two plus two does not equal four. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I was like. I read this book. I know how this ends. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. But like, like the don't believe your lying eyes. That like that's. Watch the news. They they'll straight up tell you. Fiery but mostly peaceful. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, they're burning down. You know, this that and the other thing, and it's like fiery but mostly peaceful. Okay. Oh yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. So so and but you could use it to, to you know almost anything. Yep. Yeah. The the, the they. This is a direct parallel to the highly propagandized world that we live in. The only difference is in that in their world, it's coordinated. True. In our world, I don't think anybody's competent enough to coordinate all these moving parts. I think there are people that try to coordinate it. They try. They're just really bad at they're it. They're pretty bad at it. And most of the time, they're not successful. But just I think there's... Terrible administrators. There, there's... there's Which, the, thank God. There's just... People that are easy to manipulate into but yeah, doing can, their bidding. You can you get know? you can, they can still get millions of people to dance like little puppets. Yep. They just don't have the the complete control over no. the information. They wish they did sometimes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they might, do. you know, create like a uh 
create like a disinformation bureau. Yep. So so <laughs> I heard I heard I heard a rhyme that I thought was pretty awesome when that was going around. Okay. It was um excuse me. Is it was uh they said uh they said pay your fair share. I said sounds good to me. They said love wins, so of course I agree. They said uh they said common sense, so I nodded my head. And now that there's a truth ministry run by the Fed. Oh, shit. <laughs> that is a good run. I, I like that. Yeah, I, it took me a while to remember. It was, I said, I think it was common sense. It sounds good to me. They said fair share. So, of course, I agree. They said love wins. And I nodded my head. And now there's a truth ministry. It was some combination of those three <laughs> things. And now there's a truth ministry run by the Fed. <laughs> Damn. Uh, so, now we're on to chapter eight. Winston nearly dies in a rocket attack. What about uh, a much shorter novel? Uh, slumming down around the proles. Um, he is walking and goes, and he, he makes a comment that he's like, the proles are like spookily able to know when a rocket's going to fall yeah, in their he's neighborhood. Yeah, like they can like sense it. Yeah, which I thought was kind of weird. They have some sixth sense. And then, never, and then he never does anything with it. I know, he doesn't say it's anything. Like, like basically these people have like the sixth sense and then... I was like, that's a great Chekhov's gun if you want to bring in something later yeah, in the, exactly. the story. But. No. I, if, if there's any fault to his writing, that was one of them, where it was like, he sometimes he introduces all these interesting concepts yeah, and then and just never, doesn't expound on exactly. them. Exactly. Yep. yep. Uh, but he'll spend like, he'll spend an entire <laughs> chapter talking about a paperweight. Yes. <laughs> a paperweight. Or like, vigorously describing the Rebellion's book later on. Uh, so oh, gold state the fake book. Yeah, exactly. It's describing the fake. <laughs> I feel like I'm the in... fake book, which is real. I know. I know. But the party even admits that it's true. I know. The party like straight up tells people what the world is, and then brainwashes them back into oh. it. <laughs> so, anyways, he's going through the proles neighborhood by some pubs. He sees men reading a newspaper, and he's he says he's like they're reading this newspaper, and they look kind of conspiratorial, you know, like they're talking about some really serious shit. Mm -hmm. And he gets closer and realizes they're arguing about the lottery and yeah. about how they're like, no, these are the numbers from like a fucking year ago. I swear. So this is and the funny <laughs> thing about the lottery was that it's completely fake. Yes. And ever since I read this book in high school. I still don't totally trust the lottery. I've bought a handful of tickets in my time. Okay. But I don't I don't really trust it. I buy because, uh, uh I buy scratch offs and I've won, you know, like probably a few hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. so and and the book actually kind of talks about that because people do win from the lottery. Yes. But only it's it's only the smaller prizes, ones that would make you happy, one ones that would make life a little easier for a while. Yeah. But it's nothing like the big prizes where they're like, oh, you're going to be rich. You know, yep. nobody ever actually wins those. Nope. And the people that do win those are just fake people. Yeah. They, that, just, they that, just fabricate a person. And that's what he says. He's like, you know, the people that did win the big prizes are always on the opposite side of the country. Yeah. Has anybody <laughs> ever noticed that the... Uh, Anybody ever know, like have, have it, it, for those that have bought lottery tickets and you know seen one of those people that won the mega millions and stuff like that? Has anyone ever known one of them? Nope. That I, I'm not. That I'm, I'm not. I've of I've read you has. know news articles about them. Yeah, you seen. But new, but, I so don't I don't personally totally know trust that stuff, and it's because of this this book right. back in high school. Yeah, I think I credit this book with keeping me away from gambling. The thing that keeps me away from gambling a lot is oh, and I like I, to buy gun stuff. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like to buy stuff. But the old saying, uh, 
the lottery is a tax on stupid people just always rings with me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could be fun to play once in a while. But, yeah, well, like, I go to the casino, you know, once a year or whatever and, yeah. you know, try to win. Dude, I, I don't go very often. The last time I won, I'm almost afraid to go back because the last time I went in, I won, like, a lot of money. I won about $800. Oh, hell yeah. And, uh, um... I was like, dude, I can't go back now because if I do, I'm going to lose all of it. Yeah. Slowly. It may take multiple trips, but I'm going to lose a lot of, I'm never going to win again, man. Yeah. I just, whenever I go to the casino, I'm like, this money is worthless to me. Just Yeah. Me. Yeah. If, if, if you're like that. I, I can, I could take it to the casino or I could burn it in a barrel. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're getting the same value probably. Basically. Uh, he muses that the lottery is fake and only pays out small sums of anything. Uh, he sees an old man he thinks is approximately 80 some years old. He, a lot. Yep. He and he notes that like in the in this world, like you don't usually get this old. Like it's pretty rare to make it past fifty or sixty, because somehow or another you're gonna fuck up and the party's gonna take you out. Um, and he follows the old man to the bar, and as soon as he enters the bar, all the proles look at him because he's in the party uniform, which is like coveralls, and uh, he's so out of place. Everybody's kind of you know all weirded out but he uh notices the old man's getting into an argument with the barkeep so he buys the old man beer and the old man's asking for a pint mm-hmm. and the barkeep's like no we only sell liters yeah it's er, only like a half liter yeah. a liter <laughs> yeah. and the, the the old man uh so he he buys the the half liter which is the closest thing to a pint yep and then uh he gets uh like he drinks it so quickly and Winston buys him another one because he's trying to get him liquored up to talk. Yep. And uh, and then, so the guy's like, I don't want a, a full liter, but he drank two of the half liters. <laughs> yeah. So he, Winston kind of comments on, he may as well have just bought the liter. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's trying to get the old man to tell him whether or not life was better before the revolution. And the old man is oblivious of the questions and rambles on about some old memories about the time before the revolution. And eventually he becomes a little more, co- more coherent and tells Winston that he doesn't really care whether it was better or not because he's old and old people ultimately always suffer. Yeah, he says, I'm old, no matter what, I'm going to be miserable. So you know, He's like, I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> Helpful. Yeah, so Winston leaves the bar and goes and takes a leak in the bathroom. He wanders down the street when he notices that old antique store where he bought the diary. Uh, he knew if he, he'd be screwed if he was caught there again, cause he swore previously that he would never go back there again. So he goes in <laughs> and then he Good thinking. buys a glass molding around a piece of coral because it looks pretty to him and he doesn't, he's never seen it before. The store owner then says that upstairs there's a spirit, a uh, spare bedroom with some stuff in it that you might be willing to sell. The owner shows in the bedroom, uh, there's a bookcase immediately. Winston's interested in the bookcase because books are like pretty much nowhere to be found except for the official ones that the party wants. Yeah, I was going to say books are readily available. They're just party bullshit. Yeah. And then uh, the owner tries to sell him a big picture above the fireplace. Should have bought it. Yes. (laughs) Should have bought it. That's where you went wrong, dude. You didn't buy the you didn't buy the church. Yeah. And then the owner tells him about a childhood rhyme about St. Clement's and St. Martin's and uh, talks about the churches are now government buildings and museums. That could never happen in real life. <laughs> did you hear about the um, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral? No, what ended up happening to that after so, it burned? So, so they're rebuilding it. Okay. They've got the structure more or less 
rebuilt. Okay. And uh, they've turned the inside. It's not a functioning church anymore. Now it's it's like a, you go in and you go to different stations, and it's meant for people of faith as well as people not of faith. And you go to different stations, and they kind of describe the journey through faith and 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 spirituality and and stuff like that. So it's you know you kind of it's like a you take a walk through tour of it. You know, kind of like a museum. <laughs> Holy shit. No fucking. But this could never shit. happen in real life. This is a fiction book. <laughs> That's spooky. Okay. Never happened in real life. Uh, so as Vincent leaves the store, he notices another party member coming down the street in overalls, and it's the brunette girl from the fiction department with the dark hair. Never trust brunette girls, man. <laughs> we, many men have been led astray. True. Uh, Winston is at work. He's walking down the aisleway and sees that brown-haired girl from the fiction department coming towards him, and her arm is in a sling. So when he saw her outside the store, he, like, panicked mm-hmm. and was like, fuck. Like, she's yeah, got to be a thinking, spy. He was he, he thought about killing her. Yeah, he, he, like, contemplating grabbing a rock and bashing her brains in, basically. And a much shorter novel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So then when he sees her again at work, again, he's like, shit, again, don't let your face betray your feelings. Like, just fucking keep on the straight and narrow. Don't make eye contact. But she trips in front of him and falls down. Bitches always be tripping. And he can he can tell that she's in pain, so he goes to help her up. And when he's helping her up, he feels her put something in his hand. Uh, he believes that it's a message from the thought police. And uh, that's because he thinks she's a spy. So he goes to the bathroom, which he's like, no idiot ever looks at anything in the bathroom because obviously there's telescreens all over the place in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) So then he goes back to his office and casually throws the slip of paper um, on the desk with all his other paperwork, you know, from his work. And then uh, he does a couple of assignments and he pulls a piece of paper towards him and he's like deathly afraid of what's on the paper. But then when he finally looks at the paper, it says, I love you. I like, love you too. And I got to say, like, George Orwell couldn't have fucking, like, talk. Right. To me, this is like the, not quite the climax, but pretty, it to me, it, I felt like it was the climax. Because before this, it's all dark. It's all depressing. Like, you're just slogging through this dark, dreary dystopia you get you're like what the fuck's gonna pull this guy out of this hell like you don't think he's gonna make it like he keeps talking Mm -hmm. about how he's gonna die no matter what and then all of a sudden looks at this piece of paper from this beautiful woman that he hated because Mm -hmm. he's like they're like all the same all the pretty girls all the pretty girls they're all bitches they all suck and then he looks at this piece of paper that she secretly put in his hand risking her life and his life at the same time and it says i love you i was like here we go holy shit you know like, i was gonna say this because this is the uh this is the second part of the story yes and the the this the is second, the, the beginning second, of part two the second third of the story is much lighter in in tone yes than the 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 first and the, the third so obviously this like shakes winston's world <laughs> he's he's like trying to think of a way to contact a girl but he can't come up with a solution. So he decides he's going to have to bump into her in the cafeteria. He tries for like a few days straight without any success because he's always getting bothered by his other coworkers. And Which she's that's always... funny. That part made me laugh. 
<laughs> like his his buddies are always inadvertently <laughs> cock blocking him. Hi, old boy. And I was yeah. like, no. yeah, always, always. Hi, Parsons. <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then eventually, he's finally he knows he's like, well, I need to stay as late as I can in the cafeteria, or no, get there as was it get there early? Yeah, that's what it was. And uh, so he gets there really early and sees her by herself. So then he gets his tray and starts to leave. And uh, there's a guy in front of him. And uh, he knows that it was somebody he knew and he thought he was going to get distracted. Mm -hmm. And then I think she trips the guy, doesn't she? He 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 falls and he thinks Winston tripped him. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. He gets all pissed off at Winston thinking he tripped him. So either way, they immediately, Winston sits down at the table and uh, they don't even acknowledge each other. And then without making any facial changes, she whispers basically without moving her lips because he mentions that she's really good at talking without moving her lips. And she tells Winston where to meet, which is in the central square by a monument. Uh, Winston shows up at the monument early and they're waiting for a crowd, of course, and then some prisoners from, you know, the war are carted in from Eurasia and uh, a big crowd forms and they use the crowd as camouflage so that they can talk. And the only thing they talk about is, of course, their next plan and where they're going to meet. And uh, I made a note. This is part is a relief in the story because until this point, Winston basically outlines that there's no hope. But now he actually has what he thinks is love in his life, which to the which basically makes the reader like believe there's hope in this uh goes on to chapter two of part two so they like julia is her name uh she's like very good at thinking things out she's actually pretty adept pretty clear thinking yeah uh, she's, methodical. A, she's, a, she's actually very smart yeah she is intelligent i mean she's a, she's intelligent in a particular way whereas winston is like uh Higher level of thinking and philosophy. Higher level of thinking, but he has no common sense. No, but no. He's like a child. Exactly. He's very childlike. Yes. And where she has common sense and street yes. smarts, yes. but has no interest in higher level philosophy and, and the, the, the political situation. Which was pretty like interesting that. to me. Uh, so anyways, so they she told them how to get to this secluded forest and they meet for the first time. Immediately they embrace each other because like, they're just they haven't been they're able starved to. for physical, you know, affection, affection at yep. all. Uh, he noticed he's like he hadn't seen her eyes yet. Like he never met her eyes. So when he first sees her eyes, they're brown. Uh, they get to know each other by asking questions about each other. Uh, he says when they're first together that like he wanted to obviously have intercourse with her and sex. But uh, he was like because how attractive she is and how scared he's always been of attractive women. He's like, I wanted to rape you and kill you, is he, what he says. Yeah, yeah, he's like... Uh, he straight like, up tells her that. I'm not ready right now. Like, yeah. <laughs> first time meeting, not ready. So they uh, they go wander to the edge of the forest where they're quiet as they walk through the forest outside of that little secluded clearing because it's been known that they just place microphones out in these places, but not telescreens. So they're silent. They encounter a a bird, a thrush, they call him, and listen to it sing. And of course, this sparks emotion. So they go back to secluded clearing, get at it. Um, 
And then uh, in the old days, he thought a man looked at a girl's body and saw that it was desirable. And that was the end of the story. But you could not have pure love or pure lust nowadays. No emotion was pure because everything was mixed up with fear and hatred. Their embrace had been a battle, the climax of victory. It was a blow struck against the party. It was a political act. Basically, he's saying that, like, this act of sex was a political act because it just... Which to him it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because absolutely. his entire interest in her is that she's deviant oh, yeah. from what the party wants her to be. The party wants her to be celibate, wants her to be like, you know, this, you know, mouthpiece of propaganda, wants her to, to keep other keep all the men in line, wants her to do all this stuff, and she's not. So no. he actually tells her, he's like, the more men you've been with, the happier I am. Oh, yeah. He te- he tells her, it's like, the more deviant you are, the, mo- the more, it's like, the happier I am. Yep. So, uh, chapter three of part two, she had, Julia, had her first love affair when she was 16 with a party member of 60, who later committed suicide to avoid arrest. And she's like, thankfully he did, otherwise they would have gotten her name and she would have been just as screwed as he was. Um, since then, there had been various others that she had been with physically, and uh, life as she saw it was quite simple. You wanted a good time. They, meaning the party, wanted to stop you from having it. So you broke the rules as best you could. <laughs> uh, she noticed that she never used new that she never used new speak words except the ones that had passed into everyday use. She had never heard of the Brotherhood, the Rebellion, and refused to believe in it. Refused to believe in its existence. Any kind of organized revolt against the party, which was bound to be a failure, struck her as stupid. <laughs> Uh, with Julia, everything came back to her own sexuality. As soon as this was touched upon in any way, she was capable of great acuteness. Unlike Winston, she had grasped the inner meaning of the party. Sexual puritanism was not merely that the sex instinct created a world of its own, which is outside the party's control, which therefore had to be destroyed if possible. Yeah, so... Basically, the party acknowledged that the sex drive couldn't be controlled, so it had to be destroyed if possible. Um, so if you uh, deprive people of their sexual drive, they found that it induced hysteria, and they could use that, and that's why they had the hate, the two minutes of hate and the hate week. It was like... And that's why they're trying to suppress people is because they want them to be, like, riled up all the time. Exactly. They want them to be built up. They want them to be tense. Yep. So, and here's a quote. When you make love, you're using up energy, and afterwards you feel happy and don't give a damn for anything. They can't bear you to feel like that. They want you to be bursting with energy all the time. All this marching up and down and cheering and waving flags is simply sex gone sour. If you're happy inside yourself, why should you get excited about Big Brother and the three-year plans and the two minutes hate and all the rest of their bloody rot? Yeah. Yeah. So Julia's young and naive and believes that she can live in her own world despite the party controlling everything about it. Winston, however, has a more cynical view of the world and accepts defeat for what it is. That that was kind of my slant on that whole, the Mm. difference between the two. Honestly, yeah. And and, um, so I saw... Julia's section and Julia specifically because the book really attacks both sides because oh, if you yeah. look at the the orientation oh, yeah. of modern um, American political I guess uh, 
uh, the arrangement in America, which is not what the book is written about, but nope. we can relate it to our own world. Um, so the book would, the Julia's section would generally attack the political right. Yep. Because if there's any group in America that's trying to push a weird form of misguided sexual puritanism, it's the, it's the right. Yep. And what Julia and this whole thing, um, now I don't know if the right wants to suppress that specifically to keep people ginned up. So it's easier to get them to support political like party doctrine okay. necessarily. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But what it does do is it shows the absolute, um, the impossibility of that task. Okay. You're not going to get people to stop doing, like human beings are sexual beings. Yep. They're going to necessarily mm -hmm. participate in sexual activity, some of which you're not going to approve of. Ag agreed. So uh, it kind of it kind of goes after, you know, uh, at least from a social and cultural standpoint, the right like is is constantly hammering this thing about about almost it's weird sexual puritanism, and they have for a long time, and they got away from it more recently. Yeah, but now it's starting to sort of inch its way back in. I'll say the pendulum's kind of swinging back. The pendulum's starting to swing back a little bit, and yep. uh, and I'm starting to hear about it more from uh, right wing figures, a, a, a sort of not exactly sexual puritanism, but kind of. Yeah. Um. And, uh, so, and that her, she is, she is basically the antithesis to that. Yeah. So that's what Julia is. And she basically says she's like, all she cares about is being able to have sex. Like she's, she is a typical, like modern young woman. Yep. She is, she is 100% a typical young modern liberal woman because that group, like sexual freedom is like the only freedom that matters. Yep. Uh, then as today, I think. I think mm -hmm. that's a common trend. I think yeah. women have a lot of fixation on their sexuality. Yep. I, 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 it might be biological. I, I think it kind of is. It myself. could be because women are fucking obsessed with that shit. That's <laughs> all they think about. Yeah. Um, it could be because they're weaker than men, though. It could be that's their expression of uh, individuality and self-control over their own environment. Yeah, it's possible. I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly why he never really goes into it. And no, he does. It's kind of off topic, but I don't know. I've thought about that, uh, especially with Roe v. Wade getting overturned. I was oh, like, I wonder if there's more to it than that. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if there's more to it than just abortion. They feel the kind of walls closing in a little bit on their uh, freedom, kind of thing. Like, like they're well, but yeah, but it's like, what freedom are we really discussing? Right. Because nobody's telling you you can't have sex. Right. Nobody's telling you you can't not have kids right. nobody's telling you you can't do any of these things what they're doing is they're saying that you want can't have consequence free unprotected sex with members of the the opposite sex yep at least not in the same way that you used to without taking additional precautions yep and um in the context of the story and then the context of julia's characterization they that is even though that's not really a restriction as it were it kind of is mm -hmm. because to her, that liberation is the only thing that's, that's her form of rebellion. Yep. That's her form of individual expression. Mm -hmm. And if, if modern women, particularly white educated women, middle-class, you know, women, uh, feel the same way, you can kind of see where they're coming from and why they react the way they do to that sort of thing. Even if it doesn't affect them, even if they're moms and they already have kids and they don't do this and they're married and you've seen a lot of them lashing out in a way. And I think it has to do with that level of autonomy and control. Yep. Agreed. I don't uh, want to go off topic, but no. I, I thought about that a lot while I was reading her sections and I was like, 
okay. I'm, I was like, I don't have to necessarily agree, but it's like, I do kind of, that's what I'm getting from this is like, that's the parallel to Julia that I'm seeing in our modern society is, mm-hmm. is cause this is still a, 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 at least to the casual observer. This is a, a, a characterization that's not uncommon. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, so basically that, that chapter was just describing their first interaction and their kind of opinions. And specifically, like you said, it's more of a Julia, like going into what she thinks and how she acted. So in chapter four, their affair continues. Winston rents the room above the shop where he bought the glass paperweight. They both know that it was stupid, but they do it anyways. And there's a pro pro a pro woman yep. outside singing while they're in the room. After they make love, Winston gets scared because Julia sees a rat in the corner. And uh, Winston is deathly afraid of rats. Foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, chapter five, Sim vanished at work. And uh, a few thoughtless people commented on his absence. And everyone starts preparing for hate week. Julia took it for granted that everyone or nearly everyone secretly hated the party and would break the rules if they thought it safe to do. In the end, he succeeded in forcing her memory back until she did dimly recall that at one time East Asia and not Eurasia had been the enemy. But the issue still struck her as unimportant. Who cares, she said impatiently. It's always one bloody war after another, and no one knows the news is all... And everyone knows the news is all lies anyways, is what she says. Fuck it. How... What the hell? What are you cooking? (laughs) You might have asked... uh... Because this was dictated to you. You might have asked uh, uh, B-Vet what she was cooking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> History of the United States right now. Yeah. And the, that part's relevant because yep. uh, there's always one war after the other. Um, what I I found interesting was the whole, uh, they insist that the enemy hasn't changed. Yeah. That was one of their lies that I really didn't understand why. Because I think, I think if you explained, if you put forth that, yeah, we have to change allies from time to time in order to accomplish our goals. I think people would have been pretty understanding of that in the gotcha. context of still believing the party's propaganda. I see. It's it's so I didn't really understand why they change it all the time, but it makes for a good illustration of when somebody's bullshitting you. You can always say like, yeah, we've always been at war with East Asia. <laughs> we've always been at war with Eurasia. In fact, um, do you have the part about the speech? Uh, what, during hate week? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't look like it. I don't think so. So no, I, hold, hold on here. Because you know the speech I'm talking about. Yeah. So down here describes. Okay. Week. Yep. yep. There's, a, there's okay. a quote I got down. All right. I don't want to skip ahead. I forget the exact right. order of these things. Yep. So, yep. They talk about. Okay. So chapter six. Winston bumps into O'Brien at work and O'Brien introduces himself and starts talking about how he's read Winston's articles. He then invites Winston over to pick up the 10th edition of the new new speak dictionary he writes down his address and he notes how it's right in front of a telescreen because o'brien's from the inner party so he has like little nicer clothes and like uh uh winston notes that o'brien walks with kind of an aloofness Mm -hmm. and like a more uh uh coy or uh kind of clever way about him i don't know yeah makes it sound like he 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 can tell that he's kind of sneaky he's sneaky and more intelligent 
And then, uh, let's see. Oh, he uses a gold ink pen to write on a notebook. Chapter 7. Quote, No, he said a little more hopefully. No, that's quite true. They can't get inside you if you can feel that staying human is worthwhile. Even when it can't have any result, whatever you've beaten them, he thought of the telescreen with his never-sleeping ear. They could spy upon you day and night. But if you kept your head, you could still outwit them with all their cleverness. They had never mastered the secret of finding out what another human being was thinking. Perhaps that was less true when you were actually in their hands. One did not know what happened inside the Ministry of Love. But it was possible to guess tortures, drug, delicate instruments that registered your nervous reactions, gradual wearing down by sleeplessness and solitude, and persistent questioning facts at any rate could not be kept hidden if they could be tracked down by inquiry, then could be squeezed out of you by torture. But if the object was not to stay alive, but to stay human, what, did, what difference did it ultimately make? They could not alter your feelings for that matter. You could not alter them yourself, even if you wanted to. They could lay bare in the utmost detail everything that you have done or said or thought. But in the inner heart, who's working for mysterious even to yourself remained impregnable. Um... I guess that's just one quote I pulled out of that chapter. Yeah, so um, him and Julia both seem to agree that they can... Um, they Because Julia says, right out now, it's like, we're going to get caught. Yep. We're going to go to the Ministry of Love. Yep. They're going to torture us. We're going to confess. Yep. Yeah, they both acknowledge that. They both acknowledge yeah. openly. It's like, yep, this is what's going to happen to us. But... And, but the they both seem to believe... Uh, that they can't predict what you're thinking. So they can't make you believe any of the bullshit they put into your head. They so they're can't... like, we're always going to love each other. Yeah, we're always going to love each other. Yep. It, they'll never take that from us, basically, is what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so chapter eight, Julia and Winston go to O'Brien's apartment together, <laughs> which is stupid. And they're both incredibly nervous about it and pretty much acknowledge that the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> Uh, while they're waiting for O'Brien to get done working, while they're waiting inside, O'Brien gets up and comes over and passes in front of a telescreen, into which he reaches over and turns it off. This, of course, is utterly crazy to Winston and Julia. Quote, At present, nothing is possible except to extend the area of sanity little by little. We cannot act collectively. We can only spread our knowledge outwards from individual to individual generation after generation in the face of the thought police. There is no other way. And then uh, O'Brien basically explained what the resistance was like and then told Winston that they would get him a copy of the book, which is basically the Bible of the resistance. Now, this part is actually used against them later. It's it's yeah. it's only cited in passing, but yeah. he basically asks, would you be willing to do this? Would yeah. you be willing to do that? And he lists off all these horrible things you might have to do. You might have to kill people. You might have to kill kids. Yep. You might have to hurt Starve women and children. People. Yeah. You might have to torture stuff. someone. You yep. might have to, you know, do all these things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that winds up coming back to bite him in the ass. Yep. And he also says, like, you're going to get orders and you're only going to know myself and maybe a, a few other people that are in resistance and you might have to die for nothing or yep. whatever. And one's like, yep, I'll do it. And blah, blah, blah. Okie dokie then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so chap- Say less. Chapter 9. Winston describes hate week and the commotion and tumultuous events that it is made of. During the main rally, there was a orator that was giving a passion speech about the war with Eurasia. 
And then in the middle of it, all of a sudden, it's revealed that Eurasia is actually their ally. East Asia. It says they're, they were at war with Eurasia, and then, uh, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, you're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Eurasia is actually their ally, and that East Asia is the actual enemy. Their East Asia, that East Asia had betrayed them and broke treaties. As soon as this is revealed, they tear down the banners, they burn all the pictures of the enemy, Eurasia, and begin chanting death to East Asia. And this all means, of course, that Winston's Department of Ministry of Truth has to go back and change all the articles and propaganda that was pushed out describing Eurasian enemies. Eurasian enemies. They had to work 90-some hours in a week in order to edit all the previous newspapers and propaganda. So this is funny, because they put up all this stuff yeah, they're about like the party. Decorating the, the people, everything. The people actually decorated it. Yeah. And then they're listening to the speech about he got, with the decorations and, they put up, and then they're listening, and the guy changes who the enemy is in the middle of the speech, doesn't miss a beat. It does say that he gets like a little note Yeah, in the somebody middle, hands him a note a in the middle of it. Yeah. But he does, doesn't even change syntax, doesn't nope. even break nothing. Nope. And he immediately starts talking about how East Asia is the enemy, yep. and Eurasia is an ally. Uh-huh. And the people in the audience are like looking around, and they accept that. Yep. But then they look around at the banners, and they're like, wait... Who put up all these banners about, you know, about yeah. hating Eurasia? Who put all, all these oh, they banners only about... spent a week or two probably yeah, yeah. And they, preparing all and this. They, so they're so brainwashed that they start screaming, there's spies in our midst. Uh-huh. There's there's infiltrators that uh-huh. did it. You're the one who put them up, motherfucker. Like, yep. That's the, it's the, it's the level of double think. Yep. Once again, try to discuss with literally anyone on Twitter. Yep. <laughs> 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 It's the, it's the the level of the whole double think thing, especially I it, found especially yeah. disheartening because I was like, oh my god, we deal with this every day. Yep. So I got a couple quotes here. Some of them, one of them, pretty long. Both of them, fairly long. Oh, I got more than one. Okay. Good lord, dude. Yeah. You just uh, copy pasted. No, I spoke this verbatim. So uh, all members of the inner party believe in this coming a conquest as an article of faith. It is to be achieved either by gradually acquiring more and more territory. Okay, so he's reading the book. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, more and more territory, and so building up an overwhelming preponderance of power or by the discovery of some new and unanswerable weapon. The search for new weapons continues unceasingly and is one of the very few remaining activities in which the inventive or speculative type of mind can find any outlet. Oceana, at the present day, science in the old sense has almost ceased to exist. When, when new speak with new speak, there is no word for science. <laughs> the empirical method of thought on which all the scientific achievements of the past were founded is opposed to the most fundamental principles of Ingsoc. So things like science mm. uh, would you would just use the word Ingsoc. Yep. Yep. Uh, next quote. So he's reading chapter three, which described war as peace, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Quote, under this lies effect never mentioned aloud, but tacitly understood and acted upon, namely, that the conditions of life in all three superstates, uh, Oceania, Eurasia, and uh, East Asia, are very much the same as Oceania. The prevailing, in Oceania, the prevailing philosophy is called Ingsoc. In Eurasia, it is called Neo-Bolshevism. And in East Asia, it was called by a Chinese name, usually translated as death worship, but perhaps better rendered as obliteration of the self. (laughs) The citizen of Oceania is not allowed to know anything of the tenets of the other two uh, countries, or two philosophies, but he is taught to execrate them as barbarous, outrageous, 
out, barbarous and outrageous upon morality and common sense. Actually, the three philosophies are barely distinguishable, and the social systems which they support are not distinguishable at all. Everywhere there is the same pyramidal, pyramidal structure for the same worship of semi-divine leader, the same economy <clears throat> existing by and for continuous warfare. It follows that the three superstates not only cannot conquer one another, but would gain no advantage by doing so. On the contrary, so long as they remain in conflict, they prop one another up like three sheaves of corn, and as usual, the ruling groups of all three powers are simultaneously aware and unaware of what they are doing. Their lives are dedicated to world conquest, but they also know that it is necessary that the war should continue everlastingly and without victory. Meanwhile, the fact that there is no danger of conquest makes possible the denial of reality, which is the special feature of Ingsoc. In its rival systems of thought, here it is necessary to repeat what has been said earlier, that by becoming continuous, war has fundamentally changed its character. Which means it ceases to be war. Yep. Which means it's now peace. Yeah. Well, you know, we have a Department of Defense, not a Department of War. Yeah, we used to have a Department of War until right after World War II, and we're like, we don't do war anymore. No, now we just do defense. We're just defending. We're not going yeah, to war. We're just defending. <laughs> Damn our freedoms. They were over in Afghanistan the whole time. Yep. But now they're, they're not. They're just snucking over they're not there. there. Nope. Not anymore. Now they're not in anymore. Ukraine. Now there's guns there. Yes. We, we we got our freedoms back and we left the guns. <laughs> uh, so, quote from the, from the proletarians, nothing is to be feared. They've listed themselves. They will continue from generation to generation and from century to century, working and breeding and dying, not only without any impulse to rebel, but without the power of grasping that the world could be other than it is. They could only become dangerous if the advance of industrial technique made it necessary to educate them more highly. But since military and commercial rivalry are no longer important, important the level of popular education is actually declining. What opinions the masses hold or do not hold is looked down as a matter of indifference. They could be granted intellectual liberty because they have no intellect and a party member because they have no intellect. In a party member, on the other hand, not even the smallest deviation of opinion on the most unimportant subject can be tolerated. So yeah, basically it's saying that the proles are so stupid, of course they're allowed to think freely. Because they aren't going to... Yeah, there's zero risk of them coming no, up with anything. Yeah, whereas the party member, on the other hand... They're smarter, but if they're they're so rigidly controlled that... Yeah, they're not allowed to deviate from the accepted system. Uh, these contradictions are not accidental, nor do they result from ordinary hypocrisy. They are deliberate exercises in doublethink, for it is only by reconciling contradictions that power can be retained indefinitely. In no other way could the ancient cycle be broken. If human equality is to be forever averted, if the high, as we have called them, are to keep their places permanently, then the prevailing mental condition must be controlled insanity. Sounds familiar. Yeah. This could never happen in real life. Wow. Jesus. <laughs> Chapter 10. So Winston was reading the book. He made it through Chapter 1 and Chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 is about continuous war and how the party uses it to control people. Chapter 1 was about doublethink, newspeak, black, white, crime stop. Uh, he tried to read it to Julia, but Julia didn't really care that much. Again, she just she's more practical. 
She just knows that she hates the party because it controls her. So in her mind, as long as her and Winston rebel secretly, it doesn't matter. Uh... I trailed off on that thought. Winston reads and eventually, <laughs> so, so what happens is, um, he gets, uh, they get arrested and what happened, that painting from earlier of the church. Uh, oh there yeah. A, there was a telescreen That's, behind it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, they've yeah. been listening in the entire time. Be- okay. So it was pretty like, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but basically they're standing there and they're watching that prole woman do yeah. laundry and she's singing this rhyme. And uh, they both at the same time they're like we're we're dead or we we're, are we are, we the, are dead. the dead that's what they're yeah saying. so he it's and kind then, of a little it was a little almost like a, a um a rallying cry that they said to each other because they yeah. were kind of giving up that they're dead and it's like we are the dead and then from behind them a, hear an voice. iron voice they say said you are the dead and it's yes like, Fuck. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they yeah. both their stomachs instantly and it, just, it just repeats back the things that they're saying until the police officers get there and yep. they, they're already coming in yeah and then it turns out the uh that the um the shop, shop owner, owner. Yep. was a secret police agent yep yep he sold them out and then but um honestly winston had been being watched for seven years yeah they had been watching him for seven years yep so they knew they knew as soon as before he had even started to rebel, they knew he was going to rebel. Yep. So then this is where it goes to part three, the final uh, third. And the, this is where it's going towards the ending. But he uh, recalls his experience in, in jail and the ministry of love. Uh, he's in a cell. He talks about there's political prisoners and also common criminals, and the common criminals are treated better than the political prisoners, basically because there's an underground criminal element, and they kind of have an agreement with the guards. And uh, they're sitting on a bench, and he's not talking to anybody because anytime he does anything or makes sudden moves, the telescreens in the walls of the cell yell at him. And basically, he's suffering from starvation. Like, they haven't fed him at all. He and, has no idea how long he's been there. Yep. No, I, there's no time, there. no windows. They don't know where they are in the building. And uh, he's just silent sitting there watching everything until the poet from his job, uh, Ampleforth, is brought in. And uh, Winston asks him why he's in there, and apparently it's because he was producing a definitive edition of the poems of... Uh, Kipling, and he allowed the word God to remain at the end of the line. Um, <clears throat> then uh, Winston's neighbor, Parsons, enters the cell, and it turns out he was talking in his sleep and started chanting down with the party, or no, down with Big Brother? It was down with Big Brother. Down with Big Brother, down with Big Brother in his sleep, and his daughter heard him through the keyhole in their door and turned him in the next day. And then he like bragged about how he is proud of his daughter yep. for doing it. Um, and then uh, the last part that I read was uh, there was a guy brought in that was like gaunt, like skeleton yep. he face, was, like starving, starving. And uh, somebody tried to give him food, mm-hmm. and the telescreen like told him to drop the food, don't give it to him. And basically stand, you know, right there, wait. Guards came in. Uh, they talked about how a guard, like, basically just, like, give him one good hit right in the face to yep. punish him for it. Yep. And Took then, him right out, one hit. Yep. 
and then uh, the the guards leave, and then later on, uh, the uh, lieutenant or the officer comes in and tells the gaunt looking guy, the starving guy, that he's going to room one hundred and one, and the guy loses his shit. Yeah, and he starts like, screaming, crying, begging, and pleading, uh, saying like that literally anyone else. Yeah, he like starts trying to throw the guy that tried to give him food under the bus. Yeah, he's like, take him. Yeah, take him. He's I don't want to. And yeah. then he's like, you can even kill my whole family in front of me and whatever. Yeah, he basically lets us tells him they can do literally anything they want except take him to room one hundred and one. And then they just like, yep, just, you're going to room one hundred and one. Yep, yep. <laughs> that's exactly why we want you in room one hundred and one. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, did you have any more notes here? Uh no, after this this is where I uh came to an end on my notes. Uh, okay. So um so now it's it's he's uh he's in the ministry of love and uh O'Brien turns out to be his primary interrogator. O'Brien comes into the the jail cell where he's being held and he he comes in and he goes um and he has a guard with him. And his first thought is, oh, my God, they got you, too. And he's like, they've had me for a long time. <laughs> and then, so he uh, uh, the guard winds up basically uh, fracturing his elbow. He, like, swings back with that baton thing and just hits him right across the elbow and just takes out his elbow right off the bat. Okay. It's one of the things they do, actually. Uh, um, they basically, they, like, they injure people right off the bat because it makes them less likely to resist. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, sure. So they... Take him, and uh, he briefly describes um, being held in captivity. They interrogate him. They beat the living sap out of him multiple times. Um, and it seems like the punish or the not punishment. It's not really punishment, but it seems like his time in the Ministry of Love kind of goes in tiers. So there's like phases to it. Hmm. So the first phase is like more rudimentary interrogation. He confesses to things that he did, things that he didn't do. He he confesses to any, anything to try to get the pain to stop. There's time he he gets the crap kicked out of him uh, initially, and as time goes on, the beatings become less and less, to where even in interrogation sec- sessions, like sometimes he's not even beaten. So and then he starts having more interactions with O'Brien, and O'Brien comes in, and uh, so O'Brien starts explaining to him everything that you read in the book was true, and he starts explaining this is why things have to be the way they are, and and. He has uh, Winston laying on his back, and he has him hooked up to a machine, and I think it's electrocuting him oh. every time he pulls that sw- this switch, and it has the dial goes from zero to 100, and um, he lets progressively more pain uh, every time Winston says or does something stupid. I see. That he, he deems to be stupid, and he's explaining to him, he's like, I'm not trying to punish you, and I'm not trying to... to, to, to kill you he's like i'm trying to make you sane again because from o'brien's point of view winston is insane gotcha. because he's a free thinker yep and and so he's trying to to bring him back into the party orthodox and he explains that he's like i'm, I'm here to fix you and winston's like why are you gonna fix me if you're just gonna shoot me and he says what satisfaction is there in if, if you shoot those people they get to die free Yep. nobody's free in this world Yep. and he says i'm going to make you believe Everything about the party is right. Yeah. Before we kill you. Mm. So they start, uh, and it's, it's, he basically, he's brainwashing him. And one of the ways he, he makes him believe something he knows to be false. So he holds up four fingers in front of him and he says, you said 
that freedom is the ability to say that two plus two equals four and everything else comes out of that. He goes, how many fingers am I holding up? He goes, four. Zap. And he punishes him for it. Damn. How many fingers am I holding up? And he's like, four. Wrong, you know. And he keeps doing it and keeps increasing it. And then Winston's like, five. You're holding up five fingers. And he's like, you're lying. You don't believe that. You're just saying it to get me to stop. Zap. Punishes him again. <laughs> and uh, they, they do something to him. I think they inject something in him to like to like bring him back down and everything like that. Gotcha. And so they're, they're actually prolonging the torture by giving him these like needles. But they start Damn. using that as like a reward. So you have the punishment and you have the reward yep. system. Okay. And then um, eventually he's like, he's like swimming with pain and he's got so much electricity coursing through him. He asks him one more time without shutting it off. He goes, how many fingers am I holding up, Winston? And Winston says he can see that his, his thumb is tucked. But he's, he's like, I swear to God, there's five. And he says, I see five. And he gets so frustrated with himself that he's not able to do it again. And he's like, but we're making progress. So um, I, I pulled a couple of quotes. Okay. Because O'Brien just straight up, like, there's no concealing the facts. O'Brien just straight up tells him the facts while he's interrogating him. Um, so in chapter one of part three, um, he asks him, he's like, who, to the best of your knowledge, is Oceana at war with? And uh, he says... One of the and the way he describes it is he's like, I don't know. I've been I don't know how long I've been in here. I don't know who we're at war with. And he goes, Tell me what your truth is. Haven't we heard that before? Your truth? Oh yeah. It's it's because the party is based in the entire subjectivity of facts. And every time I hear somebody say your truth, I get a little I wouldn't say a chill down my spine, but I get a little bit of that tingling like mm. dude, no. Yeah. Because that's the entire what the that's what the party is all about is that there's a subjectivity to facts there's there's no objective reality. Um, one of the things he tries to impress upon Winston is that the truth is whatever we decide the truth is. Yep, that's reality. He mm -hmm. says, um, "What is the past?" He asks him, "What is the past?" And he goes, "Well, past is things that happen." And he goes, "And what if I change the records?" Does that change what happened? And he goes, well, no, because I still remember it. But I can make you remember whatever I need you to remember. Right. So if you don't remember it and I've changed the records, did it really happen? Nope. And, he, and eff effectively, no, it didn't happen. Right. So uh, that's one of the things that that's one of the that's the entire point of the whole whoever controls the past controls the or controls the future. Whoever controls the present controls the past. Yep. So. um Another one that I had here was um, he's talking about uh, what the what's the party's motivation? Because Winston asks him, "What? Why are you doing all this?" And he just openly says that they're doing it because of power. Essentially, it's just power, and then he's like, "That's what all we want. That's all it is. That's all anything is. That's the only thing that matters. It's the only motivation. Power for power's sake." He says, "Nobody seizes power with the intent of relinquishing it." Yep. Power is not a means. Power is an end. Yep. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to start a revolution. One starts a revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. Yep. Says the power is not the means. The power is the ends. Yep. And it's like, and that's what Ingzak is. <laughs> and so this continues for quite a while. And 
basically brainwashing he's, he's slowly brainwashing winston and winston actually uh and from the perspective of of o'brien winston to his credit uh tries to to base it he tries to brainwash himself he tries to trick himself and and train himself how to double think again yep so he'll sit there in his cell when he has time and he'll try to get himself to believe things that he knows not to be true okay so he's effectively so doing brain- mental exercises. Yes, he's doing okay. like mental gymnastics to try to get himself to believe <laughs> things that he knows not to be true. Mm. And um, this this actually, I think, helps his case from the perspective of O'Brien because O'Brien, they don't give up on him. He, gotcha. he tells him, "You're a difficult case because you you you're too grounded in reality." Wow. And and. Like he says, like the reality is completely what we decide it is. It's whatever the party, if the party needs two plus two to equal three, it equals three. If they need two plus two to equal five, it equals five. And yes, sometimes two plus two is going to equal four. <laughs> it's like, but it is whatever the party says it is. And um, eventually Winston starts to become capable of, you know, double think again. And he starts to become, and um so when he's at the the lowest point in his torture and the lowest point in his brainwashing, they make Winston get in, like take off his clothes and get in front of a mirror. Hmm. And he stands in front of a mirror and he doesn't even recognize himself. He's like all hunched over now. His like chest is like sunken in. His eyes are you know empty sockets. His, he's lost all of his hair. Some of his tooth are coming out. Um, and O'Brien. Like, uh, like to prove the point, actually reaches in and pulls one of his teeth out by the root, and it just gives right out. It just comes right out. Damn. And it's like you're, you're. Look at you. And and so, because Winston has looked at O'Brien before and said, like this guy, like looks old and stuff like that. Okay. Because he is older than Winston. He's in his fifties, I think. And O'Brien and Winston is thirty nine. Yep. And um. And he, so he pulls him in front of the the mirror and says, you have the audacity to look at me like, and make judgments of me. Look what you look like. Yeah. You haven't showered. You haven't been cleaned. Like your, your underwear just dissolved into like sweat soaked, tattered yellow rags that just sit around your body. It's like, you're starving. Your hair's falling out. Your mouth is, you know, a mess. It's like, and I forget what he tells him. He, He smells like goats. Oh, he tells him you smell like a goat. Hmm. It's like it, you are a mess. You have no right to to say anything about me or to think anything about me. <laughs> and it's pretty clear O'Brien has figured out how to read his mind. It yep. might be from the drugs or it might be from the torture that he just told him everything that's on his mind. But um, he 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 O'Brien has figured out how to read his mind. You get to the um, he gets to, so eventually that torture starts to fade off a little bit because Winston starts to like succumb to the brainwashing. Gotcha. And there's even points where he has uh, uh, interrogation and, and brainwashing sessions with him where he doesn't get punished with pain at all. Gotcha. And you get to the um, to kind of the end of his confinement, and he's they start feeding him better. He starts kind of regaining his strength back. He notices it. He, he starts to believe he's getting healthier because his thighs are now wider than his knees. Wow. Because for a while, his knees were, no, were wider than his thighs. Yep. Com- so Complete muscle deterioration. Yeah. Okay. It was just completely... He's like, I have no idea how long I've been in. It's probably been months. Damn. Um, he's like, I don't know if anybody even remembers me. I don't yep. know anything. So um, you get around to, to O'Brien and him are actually having a fairly relaxed conversation with each other. He says to him, 
um, you can ask me any question. And, and Winston, you know, asks some kind of, you know, he asks a couple questions and he gets to the end and he's like, you have something you want to say to me that you haven't said yet. He's like, you're hiding something. And eventually it comes out to, uh, the, he, he asks him, is like, what is it? And he goes, you never, he's like, I still haven't betrayed Julia. And he goes, you're right. You haven't betrayed Julia. And then he gets the idea to ask him. He's like, how do you feel about Big Brother? And he's like, and don't lie to me, Winston, because I know the truth. And Winston tells him the truth. And he says, I hate Big Brother. He goes, okay. And so they take him to room 101. Hmm. And they, they strap him into this chair and he can't move. And they have a table in front of him. And they come in. And they, they, there's, uh, the, they put on the table, they put a cage. The, the cage, it has like two locking doors in it. And then it has, um, a thing that it, it clearly it's, it, it fits around your face. Yep. And so, and it like it, like it closes around your face. And so they open the first door. And so there's the second one. And on the other side of that little door, there's these big starving rats. And like you said, like. Winston's terrified of rats. Oh yeah, definitely. And they said, "Winston, what do you think is in room 101?" And he goes, "I don't know." And it's like it's the worst thing you can imagine. I see. So what they do in room 101 is because they figure out what your fear is, what your deepest darkest fear that you can't overcome and they use it against you. Yep. And that's why people are so afraid of room 101. Yep. And so in room 101, he 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 they have this thing and they're getting it closer to his face and they're getting it ready. And they're about to like raise the gate to have those rats, starving rats. And the, uh, O'Brien describes in details, like they're going to dig into your face. He's like, do you think they'll go for the eyes first? Sometimes they go for the eyes. Sometimes they go for the cheekbone and the nose. Sometimes they'll, they'll go around your molars and, and, and eat your tongue and stuff like that first. Mm. And, uh, so, and Winston's just freaking out and he, can, he, he feels like he's, like out of body almost. He's freaking out so much. He can like hear himself whimpering, but it sounds like it's coming from outside. I see. And um, he's like completely detached from his person. And then he just starts screaming, do it to Julia, do it to Julia, do it to Julia. Mm. Not me. Do it to Julia. Go ahead and kill her. Go do, you know, do whatever you want. Like, like smash her, destroy her, whatever. It's like, just not me. Gotcha. And at that point they broke him completely. Yep. Uh, the novel skips ahead to, Winston is back on the outside and he's going to that same cafe where those other people who were released from the ministry of love went gotcha. before they di- like disappeared for good. Yep. Um, hint, hint. Yeah. But, um, he, he, so he's there and he's, uh, listening to the, he's doing like a little chess problem that's in the newspaper and, and, uh, um, he's trying to figure it out and he's listening to the, to the telescreen and the telescreen's talking about the war and he's really excited to hear this latest like war news update. And, uh, he's, he's got this like kind of fear, like, are they going to tell us that we've won? Are they going to tell us that we've lost? You know, he's like all encompassed in the war propaganda and he, um, he winds up going, uh, he goes out and he is walking outside and he sees Julia and she's kind of clearly trying to avoid him. And he eventually kind of pulls up next to her and he, he puts his arm around her. And she tenses up just like his first wife did. They find a spot where they can talk. And like, so they're sitting on a bench next to each other and they, they're talking. And uh, she says, I betrayed you. And he goes, I betrayed you. 
And she goes, after a while, there, there's, there's nothing you can do. They, they just betray you. And once someone has betrayed you, even though you know that it's not their fault, he's like, that person isn't appealing to you anymore. And, you know, he's like, he doesn't think Julie is attractive anymore. Like, he, he thinks she's gotten fatter. So he, he's just not interested in her. And so they go their separate ways. And he goes back to the cafe and he sits down. And he's listening and he still hears that that war propaganda come back up. And uh, it tells him that their forces won a great victory in Africa and soon the war is going to be coming to an end. And he has this like swelling of pride and, and he looks up and at the, the big, big Brother poster and the, the last thought of the novel is he loved Big Brother. Yep. I was going to say, I remember at yep. the end. It, it That's said, the last thought that it goes through yeah. at the end of the novel. Damn. Yep. Yeah. So what are your what are your thoughts on this? I mean in the story itself, not critiquing the author, the book, the writing, anything like that, but the story itself I think it was a great it was a great novel. You know? Okay. Like the yeah, the, the well, story I mean, it's, a, it's a classic I, for a reason. Yeah, it's a exactly it's a classic. And uh I think like I said earlier, like there was times where he'd like throw things out that you thought would be you would know, lead to something, lead to something, but then it would go nowhere. Yeah, that was those were kind of moments where I was like, really, like, come on, like, yeah, can I was we be of, a little better about this than that? So, I mean, I already, going into this review, I already knew basically where the story was going to go. Yeah, me Obviously, too. We all read it in, yep. in school, exactly. But there were things that I hoped, and I hoped things would take like a different turn. Yep. You know, I hoped, I hoped, I was hoping. I knew you knew you know they're going to lose. Oh, the way yeah. the story is set up, you know they're going to lose out at the end. Yep. So you're not going to have a happy ending, which is fine. But I was hoping maybe for a better payoff to some of the some of the um, hints that they had been dropping earlier and things like that. Yep. So I was hoping for a little better payoff or maybe a little more thorough. I was surprised by how uh, little this book actually explores. Yeah. It's 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 pretty bare bones, honestly. Agreed. Um, Agreed. The The author could have gone a lot deeper into the world and the world building and the explaining the philosophies and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of bare bones, honestly, uh, in a lot of different ways, but as far as being a cautionary tale about authoritarianism in its many forms, it accomplished its goal that way. It really did. And then, I mean, it's become uh, Orwellian has become a a euphemism for, for you start to see people because, it shocks me how many authoritarians. Um, now, today, the most authoritarian aspects of the country tend to be on the left. It's not exclusive to them, and it's right. And the ones on the right do do these things too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones that are at least with the most institutional power, I would say, are the ones with the most pub- like cultural and public sway, tend to be on the left. And uh, like Ingzak is left authoritarianism. Yeah. It's not right authoritarianism. Not really. The only aspect of their culture that's right is a sort of like sexual puritanism. Yep. So if all you care about is sex, like Julia, of course it it seems like right authoritarianism. Yep. But the other aspects of right authoritarianism really aren't present at all. 
Yeah. In fact, they they straight up say anybody from any race can be a member of the party. Yes. Uh, anybody and right authoritarianism tends to put a large emphasis on race. Yep. Um, right authoritarianism tends to adhere to the the church. I was gonna say there's and a religious aspect. And there's, this is it. nothing but a oblit- like obliterative towards yeah. uh, the church and uh, ample forth. You know, he ends up in prison because because yeah, he wrote God God in a poet in yeah, a poem. So, so uh, really, what's being the type of authoritarianism that authoritarianism that's being displayed is left authoritarianism. Yep. Without question. And he does a very good job. And that's why I think right anti-authoritarians or, or even just like right wingers in general really like this book Mm -hmm. is because, um, the author effectively explores the left side of authoritarianism very thoroughly. If you want right authoritarianism, you'd have to read like handmaid's tale or something like that. Yeah. Yep. That'd be a much more accurate description of right authoritarianism. Agreed. Yeah, I. Uh, I oh, and militarism. Militarism is a lot more common in right authoritarianism than left authoritarian. Well, it's they both are, but yeah, but militarism is more associated with right authoritarianism. It's Truth. more central. Truth. Yeah, so I, I think the story is pretty good. Like you said, I agree. It's bare bones, but I think it kind that kind of lends to the way the story was told, mm-hmm. being bare bones, because you know it. What's the old saying? What you don't know, you fear the most, or whatever. Yeah, and I think it leaves be- a lot of dis or a lot of ambiguity. Yes, so I, I think, although I agree that they could have explored more, the fact that they didn't, I think, was a good thing, okay. or what was a good thing for the story, I should say. All right. Yeah, I I'd say that. Um. Yeah, I I think. So that being said, about the story itself, the the book and the author, I think. He was ahead of his time. He was, and uh, way I've the said hell ahead of his time. Multiple yeah. times, and uh, like I am constantly impressed by the prescience of George Orwell. Fucking right, yeah. The, I, the man just predicted. Damn. He didn't predict the future in terms of the way the world would go, but he one hundred percent predicted the types of tactics that authoritarians are going to use. Yes. And the 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 type of tendency of these people, he understood them very very well. Oh yeah, yeah, because. He grew up in the Warsaw Pact. Was that right? No, the Warsaw Pact didn't exist yet. Oh, okay. um, he wa- grew up. Um, he was English. Okay, and he uh, grew up and went. Um, he fought in the Spanish Civil War. Oh, really? Yeah. So he fought for the. Um, uh, it was the Nationalists versus. I forget who it, who it was, but he fought. They were they were like the proto fascists, and he fought against them. Okay, the Republicans, I think. Gotcha. There, there was the Republicans versus the Nationalists. Okay, and um, the Republicans were uh, like a, a left socialist kind of group. Okay, um, more less authoritarian than the the Nationalists, and the Nationalists were almost proto fascists, and uh, the Nationalists won the war. Hmm. But yeah. It was in the 1930s. Gotcha. Yeah, I. I mean, predicting you know security cameras and mm-hmm. the, the surveillance state, surveillance state, you which know. was impossible at the time that he uh, envisioned this. Because I don't know, TVs had just started rolling out. Was that like the very beginning in 48? Yeah, um, TVs were just starting to become. I knew like they became prevalent in the 50s, but I didn't know when like the first you know TVs. Uh, were I think of... TV technology had been around in terms of the cathode ray tube that made it small enough that a person could put it in their house. Cathode rays, I think, were invented in the like early to mid 40s. Okay, gotcha. And they started 
people started buying them for like home use around the like mid to late forties. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so this was about the time TVs came out. All right, but yeah, that's uh, yeah, he he predicted the surveillance state, which mm-hmm. holy shit, that's a real thing now. Yeah. Um. Oh yeah. Yeah. The the, the idea because he mentions push button warfare. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he talked about, and he he kind of saw the, how wars would become less deadly but more prevalent. Yes, because um, we're always in a state of war, and and we he, really are. We always have troops oh, going yeah. over and fighting somebody, and yeah. uh, we've been in perpetual war for like what thirty years, forty years, probably more than that. Yeah, yep. So, uh, yeah, that he he fucking nailed that shit. Yep. <laughs> I think. I, I can't think of, like, any huge downfalls of this book, to be honest. Things that he didn't really, that he, he predicted that didn't really come to pass, at least in an attempted way. Right. Because, let's be real, like, the, the, we don't live in the world of 1984. No, but, it's it's not as bad as the book describes. Oh, not even close. But at the same time, a lot of these things were attempted or they were similar enough that you look at it now and you're like, yeah. oh, man. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. No, I remember reading this in high school and like... I was like, I remember reading it and thinking, well, this can never happen. Yeah. Well, not even that. I thought it was cheesy. I thought it was corny. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, I thought that a little bit, but I, like going through high school, like... Uh, I hated most of the books I had us read. Yeah, I agree. And it was painful to get through that book. You know, I probably didn't even read every single word. I probably, you know, like skip through the chunks and mm-hmm. shit like that spark note i spark noted it for the most part okay no i don't think i ever really used spark notes oh, I spark in high school shit out of high school <laughs> some of it some of them like uh some of them i'm really glad i did because uh some of those books were absolutely terrible yeah like things fall apart is an absolutely terrible book yeah i i hated that book i, I, I make can't sure. even really tell you what happens if the guy commits suicide at the end yeah yeah um, <laughs> honestly honestly i make so much fun of that book still <laughs> Because she's read it too, so I'll, I'll just sit there and talk about like, like how proud I am of how many yams we have in the house. Oh, She'll yams. pick up yams when she goes, uh, yeah. uh, when she goes like grocery shopping and stuff. Oh and, God! Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll talk to her about like, like, oh yeah, we have so many yams. <laughs> just yamming it up. Just, just like, oh God, there's so many yams. I'm so excited, and I'm gonna shoot somebody off the shitter in the other room. <laughs> I'm gonna go, Better beat, go tell Oquanquo. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go beat my wife. <laughs> oh goddamn. But yeah, no, I, 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 I know why the village didn't fucking like him. Gokongo is an asshole. <laughs> He's just a village asshole, man. <clears throat> but no, I remember reading 1984 in high school yeah. and thinking, why the fuck does the state make us read this? Doesn't make any sense. Which is weird because, like, I've, yeah, <laughs> I've always wondered about that. Like, we are the state of Michigan makes you read 1984 and then locks you in your house for a year. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. What a bunch of dickheads. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I remember, uh, our teacher, uh, for, I think it was American literature. Was that when we had to read that? Yeah, I think so. Are you talking about, uh, eyebrows uh, or the lack thereof? <laughs> I think I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. The younger one. Oh, are you talking about the, the, was that college? college it might be college, college, college English. English. Yeah. 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 Well, anyways, she the, was the one that met the Obamas. Yes. That yep. one. Yep. And uh, she she asked us, she goes, so uh, you think that, uh, you know, 
Does the does Winston go on? Do you think the proles go on to revolt against you know the party? Of course not. I'm like fuck no. Like no. Why would they? They have no reason to. I was like this, and I still believe this. This book basically outlines a perfect authoritarian system that nobody will ever escape. Like I do not see a light at the end of the tunnel there, on this no, one. This is this is like pure like you know what? we're uh, fucked. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and agree with O'Brien on this one. Uh, the the biggest quote, the best quote about this is: if you want to picture the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Yeah, forever. He says forever twice. Oh really? Yes. Damn. He 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 lets he lets the first one sink in and then follows it up with damn forever. Wow, that is a picture of the future, and that and that is a picture if if. People can down continue down the trends of authoritarianism that they have. Yeah, um, agreed. I don't know. What I don't it, even want to get into the new speak. Is like having to change with the definition of words and having to to call things that you know full well. Don't believe your lying eyes. Like, nope. You, just, you, you I don't care if you saw it. I don't care if you remember it. Yep. Uh, yep. yep. Oh, oh yeah. I remember when uh, Hunter Biden, you know, the laptop thing. That story was completely squashed. Yeah, like squashed on Twitter. Well, but like no, they were... the fact that we're talking about it right now means <laughs> that they're not particularly good at that. But no, I I agree. Like, this, this weird mixture between academia, um, the the media establishment, uh, the the I hesitate to call it the deep state, but effectively the 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 deep state, the the unelected bureaucratic state, um, the intelligence agencies. And weirdly, and this is, I don't understand why these people are in this group, but the, the, the sexual like identity coalition yeah. people, rainbow like, people, the rainbow Allies. people, yes, the, <laughs> the, the, the mixture of all those groups and the rainbow people are like the least apt version of the, the party. Yeah, they are. They are the least like competent version of the party yeah. from 1984. You're right. They just suck at it. They suck at absolutely everything they do. Throw in the the military industrial complex for the continuous war thing, and you got yeah. yourself. This is that that is the party from 1984. Yeah. If it had zero brains behind it, <laughs> the reason the party from 1984 succeeds where they failed is because the party from 1984 is intelligent. Yes, they knew what to do. They knew what the hell they were doing, and they were extremely organized. Which again, I think, is the reason it doesn't like, happen. I. The biggest, the biggest I have like you know like a secret hope you know like that hope that it's like thankfully humans are imperfect so Thanks, they can never be organized enough to do something like they would in nineteen eighty four. I generally don't believe yeah. in conspiracies is because it yeah. would require people to keep their mouth is, mouth shut and exactly completely incapable. If there's ever been a group of people that prove that people cannot keep their mouth shut, it was Project Veritas. Yeah, so, because all they do is dangle a pretty girl in front of them, and people just spill their yep. fucking guts to it. Exactly, so, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it is, it is, man. So, you know what? Like, yeah. like I, I'm convinced that if a group like this existed, they would dang. Somebody would get the right idea during that revolution. It's like, all right, we're gonna have a pretty girl. Ask them if this is what your plan is. It's like, oh yeah, it's great. We're gonna develop a new language. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> we're gonna take over every institution and replace it with us. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People watched all hours of the day, every day. Yeah. Yeah, see, it, it, so that part of it I don't think is realistic. No, I agree. It's completely impossible. Completely impossible. It's never going to happen. But yeah. the 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 types of authoritarianism that you see in the book are 100% possible. It's just never going to be nearly as effective as they think, as they think it is. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, this book definitely influenced me quite a bit. Like, uh, 
and that's why, like you said, it's a classic. And I think anybody else that that reads it, or if you listen to this podcast and you've never read it before, hopefully you absorbed I, a, a I good honestly bit hope from it. If you haven't read this before, I, I do hope you read it. Yeah, I think this is one of those books everybody needs to read. Yep. I I, I understand why they wanted us to read it. Yeah. In school. Um, I don't understand why they do it in the context of, you know, this goes against everything that governments yeah. act like they want to do. Yeah. But um, I understand why people think it's important. And yeah. I wish I had, honestly, if I had paid attention to it in school, I might have developed from a political and philosophical standpoint differently. Oh, okay. Because um, uh, I, I didn't, honestly... This is my only my second time reading the book, but I had listened to podcasts about it and watched videos about it and things like that and seen the movie and all these other things um, after high school. Gotcha. And that's where my understanding of it. I mean, I had read it, so I understood it, but I didn't really take it seriously. I see. And sp- I had spark noted a lot of it and everything. And then I was like, okay, well, now I'm going to look back and, at these concepts that he's talking about here and gave it a second chance. Gotcha. And now this is my second time reading it cover to cover. And, okay. Um. Or first time actually reading it cover to cover hmm. in one sitting. Gotcha. Because the other time I was just kind of picking out portions of it and everything like that. I'd never read it cover to cover in one sitting. And hmm. So this is my second time, I'd say, reading it and actually, first time actually absorbing it. One thing I did want to bring up. So this, because, like I said, it influenced me heavily. Um, and I think it's influenced a lot of other writers in uh, books, movies, whatever. Because mm-hmm. there was actually a movie made about the book. Which mm-hmm. I never watched. I heard it was kind of garbage, but yeah, it's, it's kind of lame. Okay, and then uh, so plus Julie is not hot. Really? Yeah. What's the point, man? You got to oh. make Julie like banging. Yeah, that's she's a brunette. That, How do you fuck up brunettes? That's the whole idea. Was that's why brunettes are dangerous. <laughs> Agreed, because they're so tasty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, shit. Was that going? Oh yeah. So. I've heard Tim Pool tell this story a few times where he talks about uh, next generation Star Trek because he's a Trekkie. And uh, he's talking, he talked about there's an episode where Picard gets taken in by the Borg. And, or I don't know if it's the Borg or if it's uh, another alien race. And they're trying to brainwash him. And they're asking, like, he's on a table and they're torturing him. And they're asking him how many lights there are above him. Oh yeah, and it's it's and it's, it's almost, the same thing as it's what the exact same uh, yes it's the exact same scene essentially. So I think this book I've has far-reaching influence. It does. Well, I yeah. mean, it, it not so much in terms of like narrative structure, but in a lot of ways, it's very similar in terms of themes to uh, V for Vendetta. Yes. So have you? There's also another one. I think it was called Equilibrium with Christian Bale. Oh, I don't. Uh, it was kind of a smaller. Seen that one. So basically, it describes a dystopian future where they figure out how to suppress emotion. Okay. And uh, yeah, the it, it's very similar to 1984. Yeah, yeah. 1984 has uh, impacted a lot of a dystopian. Um, yeah. Especially when the, an authoritarian government comes in, it's almost a, almost always. Model yeah, it's a staple where it's pretty similar to what was described yeah. in eighty four. I, I saw Alan Moore's version of Norse Fire as a much more realistic version of Ingzak. Oh, okay. Because Ingzak, you you could almost read this as a parable. Okay. To where it's not meant to be realistic; it's meant to convey a message, and it oh. does that, and I think oh, effectively. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah. um, 
it it uh it's not particularly realistic. Okay. It's not and I don't think it's meant to be. Whereas Norse fire was a scarier because they were more realistic. Gotcha. Then that and they're both Norse fire and V are much much scarier in the book. Hmm. V for Vendetta than they are in the the movie. Was V for Vendetta was that a comic book? It was a it was a graphic novel. A graphic novel, okay. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, written by Alan Moore. It was a great movie though. Yeah, I, it was back before the Wachowskis went crazy. Wachowskis were those the brothers that did the well, Matrix? Now it's sisters. Well, yeah, I know they went trans, right? They both transed. Yeah, and they they've made just nothing but ass movies since. I was then. gonna say the, they're so fucking bad, but yes, they were the they were the Matrix. Okay, gotcha. But that was like the last good movies. I didn't know they did V for Vendetta. Yeah, they did. Well, they did a good job at it. They did a fantastic job at it. Yeah, it's such a good, uh, such a good movie. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know. I it, I it's a so, it's a great book. Uh, yeah, what do you, recommend. So uh, we've rated every other book. Yep. Uh, what do you rate this thing on a scale of one to five? You can use decimal points too. Yeah. Boy, I'm gonna give it a four point seven. I was actually thinking almost exactly the same thing. I'm like, it's, biggest, it's, not, it's not perfect, but it's fucking damn hit close. On this book, I have two things about this book I really don't like. Okay, and they're big, but it's just how impactful it is and how how relevant it is and how I think that everybody should read. It. If it's a book everyone should read, automatically I'm starting at like a four. Yeah. Yep. So, um, it's it's not a pleasant read. No, it, it, it is not. Like I said, it's it's it's. It, it, it's describing a dystopian future, so of course it's going to be depressing. Yeah, it's going to be hard it's not to slog a pleasant, through. It's not a pleasant read, and no. if you're in a situation where, like, I decided to—I don't know if I said on the podcast—I know I told you—if if, if you decide to, I decided to read this book while watching Attack on Titan. Oh yeah, which yeah. is an incredibly dark uh, yeah. anime, and so like my mind has been in some unpleasant places. Like I'm going to walk out of this review and tomorrow wake up and the sun's going to be shining and I'm just going to be like, ah, <laughs> got that. It's a very me. dark, it's a very dark kind of view of the future. And also, um, the, uh, and it ends on a bad note and, yeah. and it's, uh, so it's not a particularly pleasant read and it's, it's not a particularly enjoyable read in terms of like the, the literary quality of it. No. Um, I've read some literature that I thought was just grade A chef's kiss, just so fun to read. This is not a particularly fun read. Nope. And I'm not even talking about the content, just the writing style. I really don't like Orwell's writing style. Gotcha. But um, his content in terms of, of the how relevant it is, how prescient it is, yeah. it's grade A. I'm going to give this thing a 4.5. Okay. All right. I'm going to give it a 4.5. And I'm really, that's because once you get past how relevant and prescient it is, I consider it uh 50 50 kind of thing okay not a very fun read but it is good to read and it is a it is a it is a good book so oh, yeah and there's a reason that's one of the classics so oh yeah 4.5 out of 5 i guess that pretty much wraps it up um next week well not next week but the next one we're doing is connecticut yankee and king arthur's court yep so yeah anyways uh we'll see you next time with uh connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, right? Written by Mark Twain. It is written by Mr. Samuel Langhorn Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. All right. See ya.